Welcome to Sports, Clicks, and Politics with your hosts, Ben Husong and me, Sean Hannon. Welcome to episode 100, Mr. Husong, and all you folks out there for episode number uh, 100. Thank you for joining us. A uh, monumental achievement for our little uh, podcast, uh, 100 episodes. That's quite a commitment, I think, for both of us. I agree. Yeah, I mean, ups and downs for sure. Third third video platform, banned on the first two or whatever. These banned <laughs> on one. We haven't officially been permanently banned on YouTube yet, but... I mean, next to getting to 100 episodes, I think getting kicked off YouTube is our greatest accomplishment. Yeah, we should get show. one of those YouTube things and then like the, like the big Ghostbusters thing on the back <laughs> of it, like for the band YouTube. Listen, I want that and I want an Alex Jones was right jar so I can put a dollar in it. Yeah, we can probably make that happen that too. We got another, get, speaking of that, no. maybe we'll get to, I mean, he was probably right about all that, but anyway. Actually, I don't think I have enough money to fill that jar. All right. Well, thank you again for uh, tuning in. For all of you who have uh, made it through 100 episodes, we thank you. If you could uh, share and uh, like this video, that would be much appreciated. Uh, it helps a long way, or helps a long way getting uh, the show out there to the uh, peoples. And uh, again, it's very much appreciated. So, um, and all you folks listening home on the, uh, or listening in your car and your uh, podcast, pull over right now and leave a write and review. Obviously. But don't or, do it while you're driving. Uh, yeah, don't do it while you're driving. Be responsible, podcasters, listeners. So, all right. Well, so... For the historic, monumental, uh, noteworthy 100th episode, we have a guest interview at the end of the show. Sure do. George Howard, uh, director of the Comic Research Group and uh, uh, operator uh, of uh, CosmicTust.com. And uh, uh, we we go over the end of the last Ice Age and how a a theory that a comet uh, impacted the Laurentide ice sheet, among other things, and uh, a fractured comet, that is, and uh, caused a, a global flood, maybe a biblical flood of nature. And uh, we talk about how uh, geology may be catching up with uh, uh, ancient history. So uh, one of my favorite topics of all time. I love it. It was very interesting on the interview, too. Yeah, and it's a long one, so that's at the end of the show. So hopefully you uh, either can uh, split it up and uh, uh, just take in two hours of uh it's, 100, voice, so. it's episode 100. We're allowed to run yeah. along on this one. Yeah, I check no, the for sure. So, all right. Well, we do have a uh, normal slew of topics that we seem to touch on quite a bit here. That a, a media that's crappy as usual, right? I got a couple stories we could talk to about that. Um, the Biden family, more, more, more of siblings, the more of the same. Yeah, for sure. Um, we had a uh, since in. Last Tuesday was a uh, kind of a, um, uh, it was a uh, primary day, uh, an election day across the country in some places and uh, some noteworthy results there. Uh, we talk about uh, a potential red wave. I know we've talked about a little bit thing, but maybe this is uh, signs of that to come. You know, I, we talked about the media more in point, like I, I you know, I'm, I'm going to talk about Assange because he was, uh, his uh, extradition to the U.S. was approved. So see what that means for anything. I know. We're going to touch on some uh, COVID stuff. Fauci got the got the vid. Somebody made the analogy. It's like finding out your sex ed teacher got crabs. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. I like that one. 
And so, and then uh, maybe maybe this is where we can reference the Alex Jones jar, but the uh, the bad cat and some uh, I re- read some articles there. I don't know if you're going to reference him or not, but uh, yep. um, some interesting data coming out in a study uh, with uh, the vaxxed and uh, sperm count. Yeah, vaxxed versus unvaxxed, and uh, looking at sperm donors. All right. Well, again, I don't know. Well, let's start with some sports. Uh, did you get to watch any of the uh, NBA Finals at all? No. Well, your boy Steph Curry won, if you don't know. I did. I did so that. that's good. Um, I don't know. What do you think? So I I uh, just happened to come across a list. I must have done this after LeBron won a, won a uh, um, championship back in 2016, I'm guessing, because I came across a Facebook memory where I had listed the top 10 NBA players of my at my at that point in my life, I guess, and I re-updated it. Okay. So really what I did is inject Steph Curry significantly up the list at about, like, number six. All right. All time. Which I feel like is, I mean, from 2016 where he was basically probably in his, what, third year or something there, so I don't even know when it was. But yeah. way before he became what we know now as Steph Curry. Do you think as highly of Steph Curry all in the – I mean, right now, I so let, let's. I don't want to do too much like a comparison of, but I want to do a who imp, who changed the game more, LeBron James or Steph Curry? Steph Curry, because the, the the offense, the way he's opened up the offense is, I mean, LeBron James is a physical freak, right? Like sure. just crazy. And but the fact that with the volume and the efficiency of Curry's ability to shoot a three from anywhere on the court, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, anywhere inside of half court, I'd say that. <laughs> but uh, it's literally, yeah. like, with inside of half court, he, he's comfortably shooting. Um, I don't know. I feel like uh, it's definitely opened up the game. It's different. You know, it's a totally different game than when, when Jordan played. Um, I don't know. I just felt like it was interesting. That's his fourth uh, ring now. So, I mean, he's got a back-to-back championships. I've always uh, taken the ding on Tim Duncan that – he never had back-to-back championships, so I always denied the Spurs a dynasty label. Okay. That's my own little pet peeve, I guess. So if you had, to, you had to have at least one back-to-back to be considered a dynasty. Fair defend, enough. Defend your title. Fair kind enough. Of thing. you got to defend it. Um, and so the Warriors did that at least. I link, yeah, they did that. So, right. um, I don't know. I think that LeBron James is clearly a better overall basketball player than Steph Curry, but I think Steph Curry changed the game much more than... LeBron James. LeBron James changed other things about the game as far as branding, and there was no hopping team to team before he started doing it. He sort of set that trend now where you just go play for whatever team you want to go play in, and and you bounce around, and there's no, like, Michael Jordan played for the Bulls until the end of his career, and then he went over and played for the Washington Bullets, now the Wizards, because that name was too offensive. I forgot about that. Oh, well. So... LeBron James sort of changed that aspect of the game and made it much more player power dominated. And good, bad, or indifferent, that is that is what happened with him. Steph Curry changed the game on the floor. Steph Curry made it. Uh, there's no reason if you look at a guy with Steph Curry's build and he's like, I'm going to go play in the NBA, you're like, you're going to get killed, man. You're, you're like a – you make Steve Kerr look like the Hulk. Like, what do you, what do you mean you're going to go play in the NBA? He's going he's gonna to get killed. And then it just turns out, nope, because you can't stop him from shooting. Like, it doesn't matter how good the defense is. It doesn't matter where you are. His release is too quick, and he can shoot from anywhere. And I think he makes him. That's the problem. Like, I mean, like, everybody, you know. He's 50-50. Westbrook guns it. Right. But he misses. All the time. (laughs) 
Curry literally is a threat to 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 score from anywhere inside a half court, which yeah. is again, and, he, and it's. But he never gets accused of being a selfish ball player. He passes. Oh, he moves for sure. The ball around the team plays great basketball, and it's like an old school feel that people like me who grew up playing that kind of basketball prefer. And I'm not. I don't mean to belittle the talent of these guys of the Kevin Durant's and LeBron James's of the league. They're unbelievably talented. Yeah, I think actually Durant's more. More Steph Curry than he is LeBron James. Oh, for sure. But he's just a freak. Like, you right. can't be that tall, that fast, that strong. It's not fair. Like, it's just, it's unbelievable. And Steph Curry is just, it's just different. It, LeBron James, um, Kevin Durant, Michael Jordan, they were the best, Kobe Bryant, they were the best at playing that game. Steph Curry's playing something else. Steph Curry is like, uh, I can't win at that, so I'm going to drag you 40 feet out from the basket and you have to stop me up here so now your defense gets all spread out they're moving the ball around like crazy and he's a threat to shoot as soon as he crosses half court we've never seen anything like that yeah. larry bird was an am amazing shooter unbelievable but he wasn't doing this no larry no. bird was a way better trash talker though yeah probably i love larry bird all right so no nba finals but you got your boy uh win and uh i guess all is right in your nba world i'm, I'm happy what did you get to see any of the U.S. Open? I did not. Did I you probably know could have, but I had too much going did on. Did you uh, see who won the U.S. Open? No. Matt Fitzpatrick. Oh, I did see that for, first major. Good so, for Matt Fitzpatrick. Yeah. Um, he was a very popular uh, DraftKings play, so a lot of people were on Matt Matt Fitzpatrick. Right. But um, were you? Uh, I was not. I had a I had a winning lineup because I had uh, I had a Scheffler. I had a Scheffler, Keegan, Bradley lineup, and then oh Matsuyama, who went fire on on Sunday, helped okay. me win a little bit, but nothing great. But um, U.S. Open is always fun. Um, we we did talk about the uh, the live tour there versus uh, the uh, U.S. Open, and uh, none of the live players did all that well in this one. I mean, they you know some of them made the cut, whatever, but it was you know the U.S. Open is brutal, so I mean you can you can go awry pretty quickly. Um, but I don't know. He edged out uh, Will Zalatoris, another young American uh, yep. uh, player who always seems to uh, show up in majors. So, um, congratulations, Matt Fitzpatrick. I guess so. I loved Will Zalatoris when he was playing the caddy in Happy Gilmore. Do you ever okay. see? Do you ever see the cross picture? No. The comparison? No. You got to look it up. All right, I'll look it up. I'm not going to do that right now. But everybody, you got to look that up. Will Zalatoris, the caddy from Happy Gilmore. You just it'll make you smile. All right. There you go. Look that up. You're welcome. So says Mr. Hughes song. So, um, yeah, but so now we get to go see Ford uh, finishing up on this golf thing. So next op next is the uh, Open Championship, otherwise known here as the uh, British Open here in the States, I believe. Um, but we're, I think there's a unofficial push for some of these high-profile golfers to uh, show up at some of these lesser tournaments uh, to kind of push Compete. the PGA uh, yeah. and be like, hey, you know, Let's, you know, step up kind of thing. So um, it'll be interesting that some of these, like the Travelers is coming up, I think. So um, they have a pretty good field. It is geographically located close to New York for this the U.S. Open there. So maybe they just went there for convenience before they go to the Open Championships. But I will see going forward if some of these lesser tournaments get some uh, a participation bump, if you will. So um, that should be that. That should help everybody, I would think, right? Should help the tour, so. should help all, you know, it might not help the, the primo players, but, um, you know, help up, help everybody else, I guess. So, all right. Um, real quickly, we should uh, touch on... Um, Ryan Fitzpatrick retiring from football. 
Oh no, I didn't touch on that. So you should have. I mean, it, what, I mean, is what that a day. is he's is that Matt Fitzpatrick's like long lost cousin? I don't know, but you said Fitzpatrick, and I decided that we were going to steer into this because so, different Fitz magic. I'm so saddened by the fact that Ryan Fitzpatrick is no longer playing football. Guarantee he gets pulled out of retirement mid season by the late like a mid season quarterback injury. I hope so because I love watching that man play football, and he is hilarious. He's the, definitely the kind of guy who would get picked up like scooped oh, yeah. up by a team who was like in contention, who had a quarterback injury, and they're like, oh, let's just. Save the season. We cover four weeks. Yeah. Did you know, fun fact about Ryan Fitzpatrick, onto obviously everybody who ever lived in Buffalo and is a Bills fan loves Ryan Fitzpatrick because he was just such a breath of fresh air and so fun to watch play football while he was in town. And he got shirtless at the Bills playoff game while he was under contract with another NFL team. So we love him. But Ryan Fitzpatrick, you want to know why he did not consider coming back to Buffalo to be the Bills' backup quarterback? He didn't want to create a quarterback controversy? I mean, yeah, he was really worried about that with Josh Allen. But no, it's because he noticed the pattern in his career. Everywhere he went, the starting quarterback got injured. Everywhere he went, he ended up so being the starting the, quarterback. So he's like, I just like watching him play too much. So I couldn't risk it. He's I his own jinx. I love this guy. He's his own. He's, his, like, he's the Sports Illustrated yeah, cover jinx. He just jinx. acknowledged he's a jinx, and he's like, nope, not going there. So I'm going to Not sabotaging my fan base. That's it. He's like, no, I can't do it, because if he ends up getting hurt, I'll blame myself. All right. Sorry, just wanted to throw that in there. Yeah, no, fun. Um, so Bitcoin Oof. <laughs> dripped, uh, dropped below uh, 20,000. I think it got to like 17,567, something like that. I don't have it right in front of me. But uh, if I look above your head right now, back above 20,605. Hooray. The life of a Bitcoin uh, uh, follower and hodler, yeah, for sure. So, hodler, I'm um, sorry. Well, whatever they call it, I don't even know. I just... That's what I always say. So, um, but uh, I don't know. This is not, I mean, Bitcoin wasn't alone. It was uh, basically all cryptos here kind of dipped down. Um, we'll see if, uh, see, I see uh, 17601 down here as a Saturday afternoon low. <coughs> Excuse me. But so we will keep our eyes on uh, a ever volatile crypto market. Uh, wonder how El Salvador is doing. Probably not good. I don't spend a lot of time wondering about El Salvador. No, being but totally you know, honest. No, but you know, I get we, what you're saying because yeah. they they actually accept yeah they embraced it. So Bitcoin's we'll see what happens. So if they're in, if they're if they're really into it, they're buying the dip. That might have been premature, but I like it. Buy the I'm dip. Buy the dip. All Always. Right. There's never any reason not to buy the dip. Not like we're heading for a recession or anything. All right. Let's also uh, quickly move on to another one of our favorite topics, but kind of like a a weird thing. So I think you sent me this actually. Ghislaine Maxwell's cellmate claims she was offered money to kill Maxwell. Do you think Ma Ghislaine Maxwell is going to kill herself? Yeah, I do. <laughs> like, I, I don't want her to. I hope she just starts name dropping, but I feel like that woman is already having suicidal thoughts and tendencies that they're going to so I couldn't discover. And it doesn't really say that who offered her the money, right? I mean, I couldn't find anybody who was like, who she wasn't like naming names. Who was like, hey, this person, you know, no. said to to take me out. She could also just be a crazy person. For sure. I mean, you know, she's clearly at least crossed one line. I mean, she planned on doing it apparently. <laughs> so like, she's not, she's not what I would call right in the head, but, uh, you know, maybe that if, if you're willing to kill somebody for money, I think we can agree you're a sociopath. Like that's, that's the de textbook definition. Um, I would love to know who offered her money if they really did offer her money. And we can all just get on board right now with the idea that if Ghislaine Maxwell kills herself, she did not actually kill herself, right? Like we're all, we're all on board. You're not going to let him get away with this twice, right? I mean, no? does anybody really remember Jeffrey Epstein yet? 
I mean, we do. I know. I think we're it. But the idea, there's like, others out there, but yeah, Jeffrey Epstein, two cameras broke, two guards fell asleep. Both guards who fell asleep got promoted. Weird. Yeah. Well, and he hanged himself while on suicide watch with the paper with the paper blanket with a paper blanket. Yep. From a doorknob. I thought it was from the bedpost. Was it the? There's no doorknobs no. yeah, in prison. Yeah, I'm almost positive he's held it from the doorknob and held forward. Good lord. I don't know. I hate these people. I don't know. Either way, the pictures should explain it all. Oh wait. Um. All right. Kind of a weird side note to another one of our favorite topics. Even though we could, I don't know. Did you? We, I was going to say we don't have to talk about Hunter Biden today, but I guess I could a little bit. I don't have anything pulled up. I don't have the recording pulled up. But did you see that Hunter Biden? There was an audio recording pulled from his laptop. Oh God! Apparently, he liked to record himself conversations with people. He would tell them they were recording, but he recorded himself a lot. Apparently, there's a lot of uh, recordings. Just well, I don't know why, but anyway. So one of the recordings is him boasting to this London art person sure um claiming how much uh now president biden this was candidate biden then in 2019 i think it was this recording um claiming how president biden trusted him more than any person that he knew and that anything that was important to hunter was would eventually be important to president biden so this is basically recording boasting that he has uh i don't know Free reign, free control over the uh, now sitting president of the United States. Uh, what say with you, Mr. Hughesong? This is fine. This is totally <laughs> normal. This is in the throes of his uh, cr- cracked head days, too. So, I, you know, make of that what you will, I guess. But I like that you say that like that's past tense. Like he's not still well, using I mean, crack. You know, yeah, I'm just right. saying. Um, he's an artist now. It's accepted. I can't believe that. I, for, I almost forgot that he became an artist, had an art show, sold things for like $500,000. And the media was like... Well, there's a Chinese wall. It's fine. And now you got him on tape being like, oh, what's important to me will be what's important to the president, to somebody. And everybody's just going, well, it was Trump that was the real problem with corruption. Sure, but does it have to be an either or? Can, can yeah. we be mad about both? Is that is that allowed? Could we have half the outrage you had at Donald Trump appointing Jared Kushner to be the liaison with Israel and negotiating the peace in the Middle East? Could we have like half the anger of that at this? Half the outrage. That's all I'm looking for. Like half. Well, let's let's talk about Hunter Biden's half sister, Ashley Biden. So we talked about Ashley Biden's diary. Uh, I don't know a few weeks back when uh, Project Veritas was raided, and uh, I see actually I saw that Tucker mentioned that that segment uh, last night or maybe the night before, um, some someday recently, uh, basically saying why would the FBI, you know re-questioning the same thing that James O'Keefe was questioning at that time is why would the FBI investigate a stolen diary, even if it was a stolen diary, even though it's not a stolen diary, but even if it was, why would the FBI be investigating? It's not a federal crime to steal a diary, even if it was stolen, regardless. It seems as though the diary is uh, turning out to be true, which I'm going to read the uh, headline from, uh, this is the daily mail. Oh boy. Exclusive. Florida woman who found Ashley Biden's diary in Halfway House is under FBI investigation for selling the journal in which the president's daughter recalled showers with my dad, probably not appropriate, and details of her drug and sex addiction. So the diary was not stolen. It was left in a halfway house that was found by this 
person who uh, took possession of the property after Ashley Biden left the property, leaving behind her diary. This person found out what she had and the things that were uh, unable to be seemingly uh, 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 proven uh, seem to be now proven that the uh, journal entries uh, indicate that uh, Ashley Biden took uh, what she felt were probably inappropriate showers with uh, now President Biden. What sayeth you, Mr. Hewson? I don't want to talk about this. <laughs> I don't want to talk about this at all. And this is when she was a younger w- girl. So not, you know, not, I'm not talking when she was an adult, which, you know, not, either way is not great. But <laughs> Would that be better? Is, or I think this is, I think this is worse, but who knows? I don't know. Where's my Alex Jones was right, Char? Yes, I don't know. So I don't know what to make of this. Like, I, obviously, the, it appears the diary is real. It appears that Hunter <laughs> Biden's laptop was real. It's all real. It appears, best case scenario, this man is a father managed to raise now two children that grew up with sex and drug addictions. Um, at what point can you call it a pattern? Like, at what point would it not be that far of a leap to think that he did some some terrible things? Or I shouldn't say that he. That some bad things happened to these people when they were children that led to this pattern. Um, I, I know it can happen without any fault of the parent, and I don't mean to, like, cast cast any stones, just at some point, when the diary excerpts are there, when the comments are all there, when the private conversations become public where it's just openly discussed, at what point are we allowed to believe it? At what point are we allowed to at least make him answer for it? Yeah, I, listen. Maybe you know. he can cancel his next bike ride because that ain't working out too well for no, him anyway. No. Sit in front of the press and actually uh, be asked about how, this. How, I was just thinking about how terrible it must be right now for the people who are just like still holding on in the Secret Service. They're like, oh my God, this dude again? Like, I mean, yep. they're literally at every second on edge that this dude's going to die. I can't believe Hunter Biden didn't kill himself yet. <laughs> like, I truly, I can't. But I guess that would actually make it worse. But I, like the people that are just like, well, Hunter Biden's not running for president. Like, no, but this is a level of corruption that is... I don't want to say like proven, but pretty soundly alleged right now. There's a lot of smoke for you to sit there and be like, uh, there is no fire here. We have no proof of fire as you're hacking up a lung surrounded by gray smoke. Like, yeah, maybe, but, but maybe we should, you know, look, maybe we should acknowledge that there is the potential and we should have an investigation. I don't know. Maybe we should at least acknowledge the reality that maybe this dude isn't a good person. That doesn't mean Donald Trump is. But Joe Biden sucks as a human being by everything I can find. Yeah, by uh, pretty much every every measure. Yeah, like everything in his past would indicate you're a terrible human being. And you're self-dealing, you're corrupt, you sell influence, you sell access. You, you have children that are selling access that have, apparently you were taking inappropriate showers with as children. And now as adults, they, they are struggling with these mental health issues, with sex addiction, with drug addiction, with all of this stuff. And you're just going... Um, are we, are we allowed to ask? Can I bring back up the whole crazy Hunter Biden, Melania, Obama scenario again? No, no, we're not talking about that. No, no, hard pass. I'm not sure if that was the daughter or not. One of the daughters. We're not, nope, not going down that road. Nope, 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 nope. So anyway, this family is, it's Biden and debauchery is, oh, it's, who's the uh, Caligula? Is that the Roman empire? Who was the crazy one? We're like we're literally that like guy away from like. So you're saying like we're about three days away from yeah, Biden like, declaring his horse to be his lead advisor. <laughs> <laughs> like, 
Or his bike. Or his bike. <laughs> no, the bike did him wrong. Oh, yeah. He's never going to trust that bike again. No, it's, it's crazy. And the more you look into it, the worse it gets. And somehow, we still are stuck with this man as president. And they, I'm going to go back, and I'm going to take my victory lap right now. I warned you. I said, stop making Donald Trump out to be like some rare, exceptional evil that we've never seen before. Stop making him out to be some level of corruption that we've never experienced in this country. This is normal corruption. I love that you're upset about it, but I don't believe you're going to maintain this anger when the next guy comes in. And I warned you that we're going to get somebody worse. Because if you're trying to get rid of the devil, anything is better. Yeah. Guess what? The guy that we got now, much worse. Yeah. Much, much, much worse. All right. And so... We talked about the Biden uh, family, their siblings and whatnot. We talked about uh, Epstein. And so the media, I'll transition here and go, they stink at covering actual news stories. Um, Is that what they're supposed to do? I mean, and then we got this story. USA Today removes 23 articles after reporter fabricated sources. So this is a journalist, let me get her name right here, Gabriella Miranda, USA Today. USA Today said it has deleted 23 articles from its website after an investigation found that the reporter who wrote them fabricated sources. Uh, She has now kind of ghosted the world and uh, deleted her uh, LinkedIn account and, you know, checked out again. That's what you do when you get caught in this level of fraud. (laughs) But I don't, you know... I don't see any USA is, uh, Today is fake news uh, uh, kind of being shed light on too by some of these other uh, uh, news art, news agencies anyway. So um, we have this where, and I, I don't have the, <laughs> I don't have the the internal implosion that's going on at the Washington Post. Anything pulled up here? But I don't know if you've seen uh, that uh, one of your girls there, Taylor Lorenz. Oh my God! She was demoted. She is a gem. She was demoted to uh, like just to cover technology. Now she's like no longer a columnist or whatever she shouldn't be i know i love whoever coined the term cry bully because it <laughs> describes her perfectly yeah everything is like so indignant and not this moral crusader who is just such a terrible human being and a bad reporter but like doing the same stuff uh we we did a whole piece on these anonymous tiktok users we called for comment but they didn't return our call lady you called them three minutes before you published and said, we're running this story. If you want hey, to give feedback, listen, go ahead. And then published a story like four, I guess it was five minutes later, something like that. That's that is better not than, seeking comment. That's more thorough than the most recent uh, uh, claim where she basically wrote a, a thing outlining the profiteers of the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial and signal, uh, singled out uh, three different or two different uh, uh, legal bites and the umbrella guy who basically kind of, she just went in and basically said all these people just did it for the money, claimed in the article that she actually reached out, posted, posted the article, and then reached out to him after the article was already live to only one of the two. So, and that's only because that, that one called her out on it immediately. It was like, oh, I didn't get reached out to by anybody. I went back through whatever. So, and then she just threw the, her editor under the bus by saying, oh, I didn't mean that to be in there. The editor put it in there without me knowing it was in there. Nothing's ever her fault. Nothing, ever, zero. Anyway, well, anyway, her demotion is her fault. She Good. just doesn't know it yet. She should but. be fired. Forget demoted. But the, How do you be this bad at the job and still have it? And I wish I had Malice's uh, quote pulled up right now, and I don't, So, because um, he had something uh, to the effect of, you know, why is it that there's more uh, outrage amongst the media for the treatment of Taylor Lorenz than there is for Julian Assange? And which leads me to the 
Uh, I'll read from the Independent here. Julian Assange certain to die in U.S. custody if extradited. Wife warns of his deteriorating health. So Julian Assange, uh, founder of WikiLeaks, uh, being held uh, in, uh, what the, I can't remember the name of the uh, prison now in uh, uh, England, something with a B, um, but has been basically held in almost isolation for years now. So uh, like um, a decade. Yeah. And he is, the extradition, uh, the U.S. extradition of Julian Assange is, was approved. Uh, I think there's a couple more appeals process that could happen before it actually uh, uh, fulfills, but uh, it looks as though Julian Assange will be extradited to the U.S., which his wife uh, um, has basically said that, you know, and this is the same U.S. government under uh, Mike Pompeo who basically said, hey, we're thinking about uh, taking this guy out. Like, maybe we'll, uh, you know, take him out uh, on our own watch here kind of thing. So, the British officials are handing him over to the U.S. officials, and I, you know, can't imagine this thing ends well. Um, obviously, he's being charged uh, under the Espionage Act, so uh, for basically releasing the truth. Um, for publishing data detrimental to the government. Yeah. That's which pretty is much apparently it. now so, illegal. Yeah. So... We'll see how this plays out. Like I said, I feel like I, I, I was reading a little bit, and there's still a, a couple appeals process that could happen um, uh, in the England side or the, or the British side there. So maybe there's still a, a, a sliver of hope, but uh, I don't know. Unless the, uh, the, the, the peoples of, the U, uh, of our country here stand up and kind of make it known that, you know, he should be let go. I can't see this ending well for anybody. So it's that the U.S. officials aren't going to do the right thing. Uh, this might be the most um, disappointing thing that our media has ever done is ignore this. Because this guy is a is in the business of publishing news. He is publishing news the U.S. government does not want you to know. It's not that it's putting anybody in harm's way. It's not that he's trying to, like, undermine the government. He is literally posting factual, or he did, he posted factual information about war crimes, about the government spying on people, about the cover-ups, and it was all published, and it was all true. At one point, somebody released something on WikiLeaks, and he looked at it and said, this is going to pe put people in danger, like CIA people in the field. And he called the government and said, hey, I didn't post this, but it's up, and you're going to want to take a look at this, and you're going to want to get your people out because this could cause danger. So looking at those facts and comparing to what the government – picture of Julian Assange is as some domestic terrorist I guess not domestic but some type of terrorist who's out to like cost us the war and and whatever else is just it doesn't line up I don't know how this man could possibly get a fair trial I the government's not going to allow him a fair trial because he'd win because ultimately if you looked at what he did it you there's no way you could be like oh yeah definitely you deserve to go to prison for the rest of your life it's just, this man deserves prison for the rest of his life, but the people that dropped a drone bomb on six aid workers and then lied about it for two weeks until they got caught, nobody even got a demotion. Nobody got fired. Nobody got reprimanded. They didn't do anything wrong, Mr. Houston. They did nothing. They investigated and found that nothing went wrong. All the protocols were followed. Basically, their response was, well, sometimes shit happens. But Julian Assange deserves to be in prison for the rest of his life. Spare me. Yeah. And the media silence... This is what should be the nail in the coffin for anybody still listening to these people. 
I don't care if it's Fox News, CNN, MSNBC, ABC, CBS, whoever. If they're not discussing this, they don't deserve to be called journalists. They don't because this is the government turned on one of theirs and they're not only looking the other way. In most instances, when they cover it, they're cheering it on. I will give Tucker Carlson credit. He is the only mainstream media voice I have heard come out and actually condemn this to any extent to say this is wrong. Yeah, and it's not even they don't condemn it. A lot of them try to justify it. Like, yep. I mean, they basically say, hey, you know, he is uh, somehow a, a threat to our national security, which, you know. Him is, and all the parents he, attending school board yeah, meetings. Exactly. So. But yeah, let's give these sociopaths more power. Uh, 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 they won't abuse it at all. All right. Let's switch to your favorite topic of all time, Mr. Husson, COVID. So, <laughs> what? I mean... <laughs> It's Let's, not, but I guess I, I, guess I see where you're getting there. So, Dr. F- Anthony Fauci tests positive for COVID. The uh, double-boosted, triple-masked, uh, whatever uh, leader think- of our uh, public health, uh, uh, national health public scene is, uh, I don't know, what, uh, very uh, reckless, uh, living uh, somehow... Uh, at make, putting everybody at risk and uh, now contracted COVID. Well, so, thank God he got vaccinated or else he couldn't imagine how severe his symptoms would have been. Yeah, I mean. Can you believe people are still saying that with a straight face? I didn't look and see if uh, he made that statement because I Give usually look for it, but I I stopped Give looking. It <laughs> it's going to come. And so, whatever. I just wanted to point that out just as it's funny because he got it and, you know, everybody, it's there just couldn't have been a... a uh, a better outcome, I guess. I don't know. Like I said, I'm sure he's going to be just fine like everybody else. I, I mean, he's going to have the exact same result as though whether he had gotten the vaccine or not. I mean, he's 81. He's 81, but he's in good health. Takes care of himself. He's not overweight. He's not obese. He, got it. he has to eat relatively have healthy. He has access to great medical care. I'm going to laugh so hard when it turns out that they uncover he took ivermectin. Uh, no, he really didn't. I just love it. It would make my day. Um, I... I, listen, it's funny. I'm sorry. I, I'm, I'm not wishing illness on anyone, but the guy who basically shut the country down for a year, tried to get everybody to continue wearing masks, forced vax, tried to coerce people into receiving these vaccinations that were at best skeptical and definitely based on very incomplete and flawed data. Incomplete data, flawed conclusions. That is what we saw in all of these. And he came out like, I'm going to one. I just know how to protect you and everything else. No, you know. Because it turns out it's a respiratory virus, and it's going to spread, which some of us have now been saying for two years. At least. So if you're going to like come back like, oh, my God, guys, get over it. it, it he couldn't have done anything about it. We agree. 100%. So he shouldn't have ruined people's lives over the last year and a half. Are you a Costco, are you a Costco member? I am. Did you Have you been there the last uh, couple of weeks? No. Yeah. There, I don't know. Did you notice that there's no more plastic? Around any of the registers. It's all gone. I was there yesterday. Oh, good. No, last time I was there, it was definitely still there. I mean, it was noticeable to me. I was, as soon as I looked up, I was like, wait, they took it all down? Yeah, they went They went hard on masking yeah. and everything at yeah. Costco. No, like, there's they, no masks on the employees. In. I mean, there, you know, there was a couple, a couple but um, I don't know. That was just my own little notice. But uh, at, at some point, like, you have to acknowledge the patent absurdity of everything that we did for two years. Well, for a year. Like, plastic barriers that... Your breath's just going to go around and over. Like, once like you understand, face shields for bartenders? Yeah, that was hilarious. Um, once you understand that it's aerosolized, you view all of this stuff differently. And once you realize that we knew it was aerosolized in, I think, 
February. Uh, the latest was April. We knew all reasonable evidence indicated it was spread via aerosolized transmission, and they kept denying it. But you're going, uh, they, this couldn't spread any other way. This is literally the most likely conclusion. It's the only one. Wipe down your groceries, Mr. Hughesong. Sanitize and- everything. <laughs> Wear gloves. Put your mask on whenever you're around other people. And then take it down. Put it in your car. Put it in your pocket. Then put it back on your face. Don't clean your hands or anything. Just, you know, wear the mask all the time. And now when it comes out, masks don't work. They just pivot. Like, well, yeah, it turns out they don't work. Now, don't get me wrong. Those crazy people that have been claiming that for a year are wrong still. It did do something, but it's not that effective. So don't stop wearing masks. Just stop wearing that mask. And now you need an N95. And that will block. Like, wait a minute. A year ago, you said that might protect you, but it won't block transmission. Well, that's not true anymore. Oh, cool. I'm, I'm trying to keep up. And yet, people just buy in. But I said if you just maintain your position, you've been right all along, Mr. Hughesong. So I, really- <laughs> I got to tell you, I'm not that smart of a person. I'm telling it was not like it was a big mystery. Once you actually read the data and looked at it, the conclusions were stunningly obvious. All right. Well, speaking of data, maybe this is outside of COVID, your second favorite topic, and we've yet to cover it here. But uh, speaking as someone who I believe uh, your current count is four children. Four children. Uh, and I saw the wife uh, claiming out for a fifth there a few weeks ago, I thought, on social media. Wasn't that true? Um, so let's take on sperm count data. All right. Mr. Hughesong. Um, oh, boy. I did pull up the... Uh, Elgato Malo substack here, and I'm not going to read too much from it, but Go I kind of uh, uh, have the, the titles here and kind of give you an idea of what uh, here is going on. So he, he posted uh, this original uh, post, Pfizer vaccine effects on total mortile, was it mortile count? Modal? Motility. Mot- yeah, motil, but it's, there's no motility. It's just oh, motil count in sperm donors. So... So one of the great early misapprehensions about mRNA vaccines is they would not have widespread systemic effects, instead remaining relatively localized. This was rapidly debunked early uh, on. So they showed, basically, it showed it, it, it kind of migrated to the ovaries and the testes of, of each there. So um, I don't know, Mr. Hughesong, uh is this part of the Alex Jones jar where uh, the conspiracy theorists got it right again and we just get to, maybe we don't have to even make it a, an Alex Jones like labeled, but a, a conspiracy jars well, right. well in order. I think I think we got to put that together. T- t- take the floor, Mister Hughesong. All right, so the data is incomplete. We don't really know yet, but according to the study that was released, it says, and I'm going to quote it: "We found a selective temporary decline of sperm concentration and total modal count three months post vaccination, followed by recovery." Okay, now here's where it gets really interesting. Number one. Remember when some people were saying this is going to affect sperm counts and it's going to like basically neuter people and everybody went, you're crazy. I'm not saying that those crazy people were right, but wow, it's a hell of a coincidence. Now, here's a bigger problem. The authors were not, they're lying without lying on the idea that it recovers. It doesn't, not in any statistically significant way. What they did is they played the game of median versus average to draw that conclusion. So they basically said, well, three months, it looks really bad. And then six months, it appears to recover because if you look at the median of these two, it's, it's going back up. Median, while in a very effective statistical tool, does not 
is not affected by very large or very small values. So it, it does a bad job of covering the outliers. So if you had 100 people and the average sperm count was, let's just go with 50 to keep it simple, all the way across, everybody had 50. And then that would make the median and the average 50, all right? Now, if 20 people dropped to zero out of 100, your median is still going to be about 40, about 50, because the median is the middle number in the set. So if that happens, then the median remains 50, but the average drops significantly. So what they looked at was the median and not the average. So it looks as though a large, and I guess the number from the the uh, report that I read, and I, I got to look more into this, so I apologize, but it just came out yesterday and I'm, I'm doing my best to catch up was it looks about somewhere between 15 and 20% of people who got vaccines had their sperm count dropped to basically zero and it has not recovered six months later. And even if it does recover every six months, if they're trying to get you to take a booster every six months, why is there any indication that this data would suddenly change? Well, this goes back to the bigger issue of the, the complete misrepresentation of data by all of these experts, by all of our government officials that are just using this for a narrative and not objectively analyzing it. And this leads to a bigger problem of, in order to get this data actually published and out there, they can't conclude that it's bad. They have to draw a conclusion that it's really okay and then slip all the data in and you have to read it. Otherwise, nothing gets published. I, it's, it's terrifying like that this is where we are right now, but it's where we are. And I think you and I have been covering this, the vaccine, since it was announced that it came out. And we basically, we, I, I think we did a good job of not coming out and saying like, well, it's going to do this, 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 this. It's going to cause this. We both looked at it and said, there's no way they can make these claims. These claims are completely unfounded. If they turn out to really be 95% effective, it's going to be dumb luck because they're, they're skewing everything in the test to make it look better. And they're still only able to get to here, but there's there's very strong evidence this is not going to hold up. This is this is crazy that you would draw this conclusion. And same with side effects of, uh, we don't know what's going to happen. Like, we, we don't know. I, you can come up with any crazy conspiracy theory you want. I'm going to tell you, you might be right because we have no idea. There's not enough data. There's the reason the vaccines take five to ten years because we need to see what happens long term. And particularly when we talked about mRNA, it was, look, you guys have been working on this for 20 years and you've never been able to advance to a human trial. You could never get the safety right to advance to a human trial. And now suddenly you're going to just jam it all down in a year. And coincidentally, you just happen to find the um, lipid nanoparticle that doesn't cause toxicity. That You just found that right now, just as COVID came out, a new lipid nanoparticle like the old one caused all these toxicity problems and killed people if you gave them regular doses of it but now you you solved that problem miraculously the same year just that in the nick of time that they shortened all of the requirements for safety you happen to find it the exact same time are uh, are you kidding and we all just went along with this and then listen pfizer moderna the people that run these companies are who they are they are horrifically evil human beings lizard people they are lizard people the people in the FDA, CDC, NIH, they are supposed to be the advocates for the people. And instead, they got royalty payments, they got bribed, they ran cover, they glorified all these statements, they assembled the panel of experts when it suited them, they didn't assemble the panel of experts when it didn't suit their means. They became a rubber stamp for the very companies they are supposed to regulate. 
And now you're going to see more and more stuff like this because it was rushed. And there was no reason to believe it was safe other than hope. Because if you looked at the history of it, if we had a legitimate media in this country, if we had a legitimate government that actually gave a single care about human beings in this country uh, more than themselves, this all would have been published. This was not a big shock. This was all completely foreseeable and all a reason that it shouldn't be rushed. It was all a reason to say you should be more safe because there is some evidence to indicate this is bad. We've never been able to advance to this before. And instead, we got this. So now, if you took the vaccine or if you gave the vaccine to your son who's 17, all right, what if he's one of the 20% that six months later still hasn't recovered? What if that's permanent? What if it's always low? Like we, you don't know that that's not going to happen any more than I, I don't know if it's going to happen. But this is why we run long trials. Why are you risking that? Like it's an emergency. I, if I told you, well, not you because you're on my side, but if I told the average person with a 17-year-old son, genuinely upfront and honest information of, here's your risks, here's the risk of COVID posing to you. It's a very statistically insignificant risk, but you could get sick. And then if you don't, but if you take the vaccine, number one, you're probably going to be sick for two days just from side effects. And then on top of that, there's an increased risk of myocarditis for, for you to get it. And uh, there's at least a chance that it's going to significantly reduce your sperm count and motility or modal or whatever the proper word is there, my, my bad, that that's gonna ha that, that could happen. We don't know. But it looks like there's, there's some reason to indicate some people have that reaction. You want to take a shot? Yeah. And I think a lot of people have been like, no, I'll just keep the mask on. Sorry. But the idea is that we're not being told this stuff. And, and the people that are supposed to be are lying, are covering up, are obfuscating the data, and then are broadcasting what is so clearly fake information from the pharmaceutical companies with no discernment, with no skepticism whatsoever it's just like pfizer comes out and says safe and effective and everybody in the government goes safe and effective safe and effective safe and effective how dare you question us we are the experts you idiot get off youtube for spreading this dangerous misinformation now i don't know how bad this is going to be this might turn out to be nothing it might all go back to normal right after i hope it does but again we've been lied to for two straight years we didn't know what would happen and we just partook in the largest medical experiment ever. And even Pfizer and Moderna, in their trials, they vaccinated the control arm, so you have no comparison anymore. There is no trial ongoing. It's just a human trial on a huge scale. I, I mean, the Biden administration is out here taking a victory lap for being the first country to authorize the vaccine for children under five. You don't deserve praise for that. You deserve to be condemned. You deserve to be laughed out of every room because there's a reason no other country is doing this. Most, I shouldn't say most. Other countries, meanwhile, are telling anybody under 30, don't take Moderna. Shouldn't take it. We don't recommend it. Anybody under 30. And we're over here just approving it for six-month-old babies? What is wrong with us? How did we get here? And I don't know what to say other than this is horrifying. And it was predictable yeah it's it's been a slow motion train wreck you just watch it all happen but can't stop it and people are still out here championing this cause of like i just don't grasp what will it take for you to ask questions 
What will it take for you to have some doubt? How many things need to go wrong? How many reports do you have to see about, well, you know, we're seeing an increased cardiac death rate among young adults due to climate change. You printed that with a straight face and people are buying that up. Or how about human combustion? People are just dying because it's hot. We don't even know why. It's just climate change. Like, you guys got to do better than this. Give us a legitimate reason for why people are dying. Why, are there, why is there such an increase in blood clots? Why is there such an increase in stroke? Why is there such an increase in cardiac events amongst young people? If, the, if you look at me with a straight face and tell me climate change, I know I don't have to take you seriously as a human being any longer. Like, we don't need to talk. We're good. You're entitled to your opinion. God bless you. But if you believe that, if you could get your brain to that point, I don't think I'm going to learn too much from you in a debate. I'm going to go debate somebody with a little bit more skepticism and, frankly, intelligence. But by all means, broadcast it. Let the whole world see how crazy that actually is. You're not allowed to say, wow, we just administered this completely unknown vaccine technology on half the world, and now we're seeing this huge increase, huge increase in cardiac events, sudden adult death syndrome, which I maintain was not a thing until this year. I don't care what you, stop, it wasn't. And most of those are cardiac related. You're seeing all of this, and you're telling me like, oh, it's very, very normal for women under 40 to have heart attacks. Mm, no, it's not. Never was before. Oh, it's climate change. Are, are you freaking kidding me? That's the explanation. Is it any chance that it's the vaccine? Oh, why don't you go get your tinfoil hat on, you psycho? No, it's climate change. The earth got one degree hotter and people are spontaneously combusting. Idiot. Yeah. This is how little these people think of you. This is their explanation. But I do think, uh, you know, I'm not... Changing the subject, I feel like this is uh, going to bring about change politically, whether or not... Uh, the red wave, I think the red wave is going to happen. It's a, whether or not the red in the wave can actually do anything with uh, control when they get it. Like, I'm not high hopes for that by any means. But um, we got a glimpse at a potential wave. And uh, your boy, our boy, Elon Musk, came out and uh, said he voted Republican for the first time. Ever. He, yeah. And uh, he was uh, one of the people who voted for Myra Flores, who is a, uh, was a special election for congressional seats there and. uh I guess there's some redistricting going on, so she might not even be the uh, uh, actual representative come 2024, I guess, or whatever By it is. By redistricting, yeah. you mean gerrymandering? Yeah, whatever they call All it right. these days, hokelmandering. So, um, uh, and he also, uh, when asked on Twitter, he likes to engage on Twitter, if you don't know. I do um, know Asked who he would lean for as far as president, he said he was uh, kind of in the DeSantis camp. So, uh, more... Uh, affirmation that he is uh, kind of voting Republican and, uh, you know, obviously nobody's actually in the booth. I'm assuming he's telling me the truth. So we're just going to go with that. So um, it appears is, uh, I don't know, does, does Musk saying he's going to vote a particular way actually influence other voters? No, no, I don't think so. But I think that it's indicative of a larger uh, sentiment. Do you remember in uh, 2020, when everything was going down, we had riots all over the place. We had crazy things coming out. And you and I just kept saying, all you have to do is not go crazy and you're going to win in a landslide for the Democrats. Like, all you have to do is not go nuts. Stop. Just rein this in and you will win every seat. You will win the presidency. You'll have the Senate. You'll have the House. You will win supermajorities and everything because people are tired of this man. And all you had to do was not go crazy. The pendulum has swung. 
All the Republicans have to do is not go crazy. And so far, they're doing a much better job of it than the Democrats did when they had their turn. So they're doing a very good job of doing what Republicans do, which is nothing. They are running out the clock. They're trying not to make any bold statements. They're trying not to do anything too divisive. Meanwhile, the Supreme Court is contemplating or close to overturning Roe v. Wade. And we've had a assassination attempt on a Supreme Court justice. And today or yesterday, a bunch of protesters showed up outside Amy Coney Barrett's house with blood-covered dolls. Yeah, we didn't get into that, but that's probably going to come out tomorrow. I mean, my God, what are you like? Are you trying to write the ad campaigns for the Republicans? Is that like, is this what you're going for? You, we had an assassination attempt on a Supreme Court justice. I shouldn't say an attempt, but. Some steps were taken. The guy showed up with a gun, knife, and zip ties at the Supreme Court justice's house. I don't know what to label it. You want to call it an attempt? You want to call it a... Uh, I mean, he got charged. Okay. What did Joe Biden say about that? I didn't hear. Oh, he hasn't commented. He's the president of the United States. One of the leaders... We already covered this. Hunter Biden doesn't think it's important enough, so Joe Biden doesn't think it's important. The chief justice, the guy that is the head of one of the three three branches of our federal government. Somebody tried to kill him. The other head of of the other branch is going, so let's talk about oil. Like, ah, you want to comment on, hey, guys, don't kill Supreme Court justices. Should go without saying, but my God, if you want to protest, don't do it at their houses because it's illegal. It is clearly an, an attempt to influence a judicial opinion while protesting at their home, which is absolutely illegal. 100%, not a gray area. If you are outside trying to intimidate a justice in, or a judge of any type into changing a legal opinion, it's against the law. You're not allowed to do it. I don't, I don't understand like what's happening right now. So I'm going to go back to like what I used to say in 2020 of like, do, do you want more Trump? Because this is how you get more Trump. You do stuff like this. And I do think we're going to see a bit of a red wave. I do, because I think that at this point... Well, I think it's going to be a huge red wave. I think it's going to be... It's going to be the blue you know. wave of 2020 look very small. I think you're going to see a big push because they're just not going crazy. They're just maintaining and they're just saying, uh, no, we, we don't think we should be doing that. And everybody's like, oh, thank God. That's all. That's all we're looking for. And I think that... If nothing else has come from the last two years, I think the government has finally put on full display for most people to realize how completely incompetent they are, how completely inept, how completely corrupt. It's undeniable. It's an, it's an absolute farce that we listen to these people to, to, any, to dictate any part of our lives. They're yeah. a joke. I wish, I wish there wasn't only two waves, a red and a, and a, and a blue wave, so that... Uh... Uh, we wouldn't just have to ping pong back and forth. And I will say I'll, one more thing on Musk uh, that he followed up, and I'm, I'm guessing this is uh, part of another tweet. Is like I'm thinking of creating a super moderate super PAC um, that supports candidates with centrist views from all parties, right? So if he was able, I mean, most people who get started in politics don't have the name recognition to win a race. That's usually the biggest obstacle to come from. Yeah. And usually when you don't have name recognition, you have to buy enough marketing, basically, ads to create that name recognition or msnbc has you on their show every other day for six months that's a different that's, the election. That, that, that's also a different way of uh, uh collecting money to do that i guess um but ha- having a pack that would i mean seemingly endless amounts of money if that was the case um but being able to support candidates in primaries for both parties or all parties however you're going to word it um i think would do the most good i mean i think there's 
Right now, the only time there's a primary is usually when the incumbent goes off the rails and crosses the party, then they they go out and look for somebody else. So it kind of uh, disincentivizes you to go against the party, right? But if you had the ability to tap into money that would offset the uh, uh, that primary cost, then you know you get more candidates. I think at least more. It's too too big of an entry for regular Joe Blow to enter the the to enter politics and be successful at it. So now why? Because they don't. I, again, first of all, they don't have name recognition. And if they don't aren't, aren't willing to spend or don't have and willing to spend some disposable monies, wealth from their own personal uh, stash, then they're never going to create that unless they've already, you know, like I said, if you're some uh, uh, local celebrity or something, then you have some built in uh, uh, name recognition. But it's hard to enter politics um, unless you're going to, you know, again, you, 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 like Trump had could run roughshod because he had enough money to kind of run over the Republican Party at the time. It's not only they didn't have money. He literally got put on TV four days a week. That too. You you can't buy that kind of airtime. For sure. And, of course, his candidate also forgot that the state of Wisconsin exists. So, I mean, his opponent, rather. So that that helped him. Um, But my point is, the system (sighs) is this way because the people in charge want it this way. For sure. This is not an accident. This is not a, it's not a fault. It's it's not a bug. It's a feature. And, and this I, is how the system is supposed to work. I, I sent you this, and this will kind of be our last article before we get to uh, the, the the George Howard George Howard interview. So uh, hopefully you guys will all stick around for that and listen how the end of the last ice age ended. But also, kind of uh, in line with this uh, red wave uh, idea, I sent you this article from the uh, Texas Tribune. Texas Republican Convention calls Biden win illegitimate and rebukes Cornyn over gun talks. So this is. Uh, the Texas Republican Convention, so you know, delegates get together for the uh, state Republican Party, basically, and they made a uh, resi- uh, resolution that basically called the election uh, illegitimate and said that uh, Joe Biden is not really the president. So, well, they're getting kicked off Twitter. Do we think this is a uh, more of a foot into the door of a secession attempt by Texas? Wouldn't I that mean, be if fun? They go, I might, I might join them. Wouldn't that be fun? You have Elon and Joe Rogan down there in Texas. That'd be fun. I'd be a good state to live in all of a sudden. Yeah. You'd have to get all the people that transplanted from California, except Joe Rogan. It wouldn't even be a state anymore, right? It would be some kind of like... They uh, have the right to secede. Yeah. It's built into their constitution. Yeah. So I would be curious to see how that would play out if it did happen. But anyways. I just, yeah, I thought that was an interesting, I don't know, uh, when you, there's clearly a widening gap uh, between ideologies, and there seems to be no way to well, cross across at the at the extremes of either. There's zero chance you're ever going to resonate with the other, right? So, like, you're really just fighting for the the middle. Um, Correct me if I'm wrong, but wasn't there just a woman that was found guilty of ballot stuffing in Texas, like legit large yeah. scale voter fraud? I think it, I know there was one in Pennsylvania, and I think there was one in yeah, Texas. There was one in Texas. Yeah, like I, I mean, so you you could laugh. But I don't know, like, I've never looked into it, and I'm I'm inclined to not look into it because it is what it is. I think there's a voter fraud in every election. Do I think there was enough to really transition the, the, the score? Maybe. I don't know. But I also don't think there's any means to address that if it did happen. We, we don't have a system where Donald Trump can resume or assume the presidency because the election's been certified. He's already taken the oath of office. It's over. So, I mean, all you're going for now is to charge him with election fraud, which I don't think you're ever going to find that on Biden. Like, it's never going to happen. So I, I, there's no 
there is no means of redress if it is all true. So I just tend to, I don't care. Like you're never going to be able to, I don't think you're going to be able to prove it. And now you're finding more and more cases where it happens. So the idea of, well, there was no election fraud is laughable. There was definitely election fraud. Um, have I, you watched that 2000 mules yet? I still haven't. I watched part of it. Okay. But I got, I, I told, got I told you I watched, uh, what is a woman? You Not did. that they're related, but I mean, you know what I mean? I get what you're going for there. Um, but I do think that also that the gun control debate is going to be a hotly contested one. And I don't think that the people who want to ban. Well, the Supreme Court could be ruling on that this week, too. Like I said, so I, just real quickly, I know I, we didn't talk about this at all. But I figured we would talk about it next week because like apparently the SCOTUS uh, session ends Thursday. Sure. And that most likely they will either uh, deliver any opinions uh, Tuesday or Thursday. Oh, boy. So we could get something as early as tomorrow. We okay. could get something uh, as late as Thursday. Nobody thinks they're going to carry it over to the next session, whatever that is. So um, it appears go. as though we're going to have uh, some news. Now, we could get not only the Roden Casey stuff, but a, uh, a Second Amendment ruling for here. The uh, I think it's the Nyperger case here from New York, the Ri- Rifle and uh, Pistol Association up here. So um, we could That's get about a concealed carry, right? Yeah, I, I feel like that is, um, but it's uh, it's the way. The, my understanding is that it will open up basically almost all of New York's gun laws to question the way it's being challenged. So, well, um, because if you, I think that what their central argument is, if I have the right to keep and bear arms, you're acting as if my ability to carry a pistol is a privilege that I have to earn and not a right to which I am entitled. Yeah, and I tend to agree with that. Yeah. So that we all could we could get all that stuff this week, which could make a for an interesting show next week. All right, week, I'll I save guess, my so. gun control rant for next week. <laughs> Speaking of that, we gotta get back to Maj about I know, coming I'm up. Get him on the show. All right. So um all right. So before we get into this interview, again I'll uh, tease it a little bit. This is George Howard. He is the uh, director of the Comet Research Group, which is a uh, uh, a group of scientists who uh, basically put forth put forth the hypothesis that a uh, comet or comets or a fragmented comet uh, made impact with Earth uh, within human history there at the end of the last ice age. So um, causing basically massive flooding and uh, climate changes and uh, basically hell on Earth for uh, maybe upwards of 1,100 years, which basically is described in the Younger Dryas era, which is the small geological era that bridges the Pleistocene to our current Holocene era and the Younger Dryas was probably a, not a good time to be a, on this planet here. So uh, if you think we're dealing with climate change now, wait till you, you could have been back then. So um, before we do that, and uh, I will uh, uh, ask Mr. Husong for any words of wisdom, any enlightenment for the folks until episode 101 next Monday. Stop believing the government, stop believing pharmaceutical companies, stop believing oil companies, and stop believing defense contractors. And the media. Oh, God, yeah, you should have already stopped that a long time ago. All right, so on that note, I want to thank everybody uh, and uh, for tuning in for the show, and uh, please enjoy the uh, interview coming up here with uh, George Howard. And I'm going to talk, the first 30 seconds here is uh, me uh, uh getting audio situated with Mr. Howard here. So uh, bear with me for uh, just a few seconds. And I apologize because I have a uh, allergy, allergy, uh, allergy uh, voice. Mm. You've got a deep voice. I wish I had one. Yeah, well, yeah. My, my kid actually thanked me for his voice the other day. So I guess we passed it on. I got to uh, count. <laughs> 
I want to welcome to the show a gentleman who has spent decades collaborating with dozens of credentialed scientists from around the world regarding the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, while also working closely with many alternative history science communicators such as Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson. He has nearly 1,000 Younger Dryas impact citations. You can check out his work at CosmicTusk.com. Ladies and gentlemen, George Howard. George, thank you for your time today. Um, I am looking forward to a uh, lively discussion. Hey, that's great, Sean. I'm um, happy to be on, happy to join you and Ben, and um, I'm honored to be on your 100th podcast. Congratulations on that. Quite a milestone. Yeah, I think when I reached out to you, we, we have uh, covered a lot of things and uh, uh, throughout the last, our, our podcast basically started in the middle of the George Floyd riots and became a COVID mm -hmm. podcast for the last two and a half years, um, or whatever we were, as we get close to episode here, 100. Um but we're trying to break away from the uh, Jeffrey Epstein, Hunter Biden laptop and COVID talk to maybe talk about something a little bit more uh, lighthearted, like the end of the world. Yeah, well, those are all worthy topics, but they're well covered. And I can assure you, yes. mine is not well covered. Yes. So maybe no. we introduced to some people. And, and just as you point that out, I, I did a little market research and I'm going to say this yeah. is a market research of five individuals. Zero of those five ever yeah. heard of the words Younger Dryas. Well, you know, that's true. You know, it's also true in my professional life. I'm an um, environmental mitigation banker, and no one knows what the hell that is. So if somebody asks me about my avocation and my vocation, you're looking at two 30-minute conversations right there, man. Yeah. But, um, um, but I hope to live long enough for both of them to become well-known, and particularly the Younger Dryas Hypothesis, because that has importance to every single person on Earth if they're concerned about their past or their future. Yeah. Okay. So let me tee this up a little bit. So I don't know if you're familiar with the Carolina Booms. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. The Seneca guns, you'll hear them called. Yeah, right. The Seneca guns. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, up, we're in upstate New York. So we have uh, uh, a lot of uh, Native American and Seneca is uh, well yeah. uh, uh, labeled up here in, in our parts. But the Carolina Booms, and I don't want to talk about that here now, basically led yeah. me to the Carolina Bays, um, <laughs> which I found utterly fascinating and haven't not found fascinating ever since. Uh, at yeah. one point along the way, I, I definitely stumbled upon uh, your work. Yeah. Uh, I have been following along with uh, Antonio Zamora's work. Uh, that feels like, Wonderful. You know, like a daily thing. Yeah, it's great. Um, and, you know, I have a couple images here that I'll, I'll, I'll try to share with the uh, folks as we go along here to try to show what we're talking about. But I think some, I would say the genesis of your catastrophism is from the Carolina Bays, but I feel like you have, uh, I don't know, cut your teeth in the Carolina Bays, or at least you have a, uh, a lot of your avocation was started with the Carolina Bays. Is that accurate? Yeah. Yeah. Um, the first, I'm, I referred to it there. I'm in the large scale environmental restoration business. And the first wetland I restored was a Carolina Bay, but I'd heard about it before that from my boss. I worked in the U.S. Senate for six years. And I can tell a little story about that if you like, sure. or you can yeah. show some pictures and um, yeah, the Carolina Bays are kind of the kookiest of the many parts of our theory. Many of the parts aren't kooky, but the Carolina Bays remain unexplained and could remain unexplained the rest of our life. But the way I came about them was I was uh, working in policy, environmental policy there in the Senate and uh, for the personal office of the junior senator from North Carolina at that time, uh, Duncan McLaughlin Locke Faircloth. And he was That's a, a big-time farmer country boy, Lock Faircloth, old school, former Democrat, whatnot. But he was, uh, he, he, he was a farmer's farmer um, and also very intelligent, wonderful person who I learned a lot from. So uh, studying um, environmental stuff and working on wetlands policy, 
I kept seeing, you know, in various descriptions of wetland types around the country, you'd see swamps, fins, bogs, cypress forests, Carolina bays. And I'd always, you know, working in it and working in a North Carolina office, I was like, what the hell is that Carolina bays, you know? And that was mostly pre-internet that it actually just came out when I had this discussion on Will Scrap. So then the boss one day, <clears throat> he, um, he said, get me a one to 24,000 topo USGS topo quad of my farm. And I didn't know what the hell that was. I do now because I work with them a lot of my work, but that's standard United States geological service uh, map. You might have 10 or 20 of them in a given County. So I called up uh, USGS Congressional Affairs, as you can do as a Senate staffer. And I said, hey, could y'all get me one of these maps? You know, Sampson County, North Carolina. And they said, yes, sir, we will. And Courier comes over and brings the tube. So they must have had a warehouse in D.C. where they actually kept some of that stuff. So very proud to have acquired it. I walked in the senator's office, asked him if he had a few moments. And he did. And I said, I got your map. So I rolled it out on his desk. And he put his arms down and I had no idea what he wanted to study about it, but he was just a study. And I was looking over his shoulder and I saw a series of perfect, perfectly aligned, but generally different sized, just as you're showing on the screen now, um, dotted green lines, which is the way USGS shows Carolina Bays. They don't do any of the elevation or any of that, like your fine LIDAR pick above, but you could see like on the bottom, the dotted green lines. And I said, Senator, what the hell? He cussed a lot and we were welcome to cuss too. I said, what the hell are all those dotted green lines all over your land? He said, meteor holes. And I was like, meteor holes. And uh, he said, yeah, when I was a boy, it was all over the news. We were all excited about it. And he actually got it right. He didn't say asteroid. He said a comet came in. And a whole bunch of little pieces of it slammed into North Carolina and up and down the East Coast and just destroyed everything. And he was probably 10 years old, so it had been 1933 or so. And I said, no kidding. you! I've never heard of such a thing. I kind of kind of a sciencey guy, um, even though it's more political at that time. But I had a you know, background of intense interest in science. And I said, Senator, I've just never heard of that there were any craters in North Carolina. And he goes, yeah, they call them Carolina Bays. And I was like, uh, that's what that is. I thought it was like a marina or something or, you know, a baseball team or who the hell knows what it is. And then I became absolutely hooked on it. And I went back to my computer and literally the Internet had been hooked up a week or two before. And I was one of the first people to get it in the Senate as a staffer. And I Googled in there and an early website, still much the same, um, that Bob Kobris, K-O-B-R-E-S, uh, who at that time worked in the University of Georgia library system, had set up. And he had hoisted a bunch of stuff on Carolina Bays. And it was good stuff. And it was intriguing papers from the past. And as it turned out, there was a very uh, 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 a, a, a very intense, excuse me, a very intense scientific controversy over these features from when they were first discovered in the 1930s. Maybe going on too long for you, Sean. No, okay? no, no, you're yeah. fine. And like, yeah, go ahead. And like I said, I was going to hope you were going to say what the mainstream uh, accepted theory was at some point uh, about these Carolina bays. That's right. Well, the first thing people thought they rolled the maps out, they'd taken a bunch of aerial photos in the depression and works progress administration thing, rolled them out in, in Myrtle beach. And they, they were astounded to see 
that what they knew is generally oval lakes out there and depressions in the ground were absolutely everywhere outside of Myrtle Beach. And they immediately thought, some of the first people that saw it said, well, my God, those are, must be something came from above. All that was created at the same time. And they must be some type of craters and craters were just beginning to be accepted at that time. It wasn't well into the 20th century that they even agreed that the big hole out in Arizona, Meteor Crater, Behringer Crater, was caused by, uh, was not caused by volcanism, but caused by a cosmic object. So it looks so much like something had come from above that a number of researchers dove in. And it was kind of accepted at first. And that's what the, the senator was remembering when it was as big as a boy had been on the cover of Harper's Magazine and said the comet that hit the Carolinas. And it's a little bit like the Younger Dry Hypothesis itself. And that at first it was accepted and it was interesting. And it's fun to talk about. And then the trolls came out. And they were responsible trolls in that day, you know, and they were assholes, but they were probably a better version of asshole than we have today. And they started slinging papers at each other and spent about 20 years slinging papers at each other. And it breaks down into an extraterrestrial, you know, as in not of this earth and a terrestrial camp. And the terrestrial camp in the end and more or less at the beginning. Um, well, first of all, there are about 15 different explanations of what they are. And anybody can read those on the Internet. And I won't bore you with them now, but they, they kind of break down that way with most of them being terrestrial, because it's very hard to explain them terrestrially. So there are a bunch of disagreeing things about how they happen. But by the um, 1970s, in a key paper that was written by um, a guy, Ray Kakarowski, that supposedly put it to bed, said that the Carolina Bays were the result of persistent post-glacial or glacial winds, called catabatic winds, I believe, that are intense winds we don't see today, blowing across the flat, landy, sandy landscape of the Atlantic coastal plain. And that by virtue of that um, aeolian process, it dug out and ellipticized a depression, which some were filled again as lakes. And if you look at Google Earth, they're absolutely, it's just a gift, Carolina Bay studies. And you can see um, all up and down the East Coast, if you look carefully, but you cannot miss them at the North Carolina, South Carolina border. And they're thousands upon thousands upon thousands of these ellipses. And Cobra suspected that they may have been called simultaneously from above. So he was still an advocate on, you know, keeping the flame alive for the extraterrestrial folks. And so I got into it and I, um, I was fascinated by it and talking with my friends and all that kind of stuff. And I um, was talking to a buddy, real good friend, and he was going back to UNC to uh, finish up his degree. He'd taken about a five-year uh, hiatus, and he was coming to get a couple of last classes to get his degree. He's taking geology, and he said, hey, George, I, one of the topics on my um, papers is to, uh, geology papers is to do a paper on Carolina Bays. That's that stuff you're always talking about, right? And I said, absolutely. He said, hey, will you uh, write me some notes on that? And I said, yeah, I'll write you some notes, buddy. So I sat down and I banged out a 27-page paper, and he got a B. And I think that was clear bias because I, because I took the extraterrestrial hypothesis and ran with the history of it and how it had been unfairly treated through the years. And then it had been totally sidelined, like no more to be discussed. To, to be discussed. And I referred to it in the paper towards the end. I said, it's the, the crazy ant in the attic of geology. You know, they just don't want to talk about her. They know she's up there. It's embarrassing. They're not bringing her out and they're not bringing her up at the dinner table. 
So if you want to ever disturb a geologist, say the term Carolina Bay and, yeah. and you'll get their attention. So I put that paper on the web. And then in 2001, I got contacted uh, by uh, an archaeologist. It was a little, a little kind of a strange guy and I didn't pay much attention. And then I got an email from Dr. Richard Firestone and his address was one cyclotron drive, Berkeley, California. He worked at Lawrence uh, Berkeley National Laboratory and was an isotopic chemist of some note. And he said, I'm following up on this stuff. We saw, we believe we have found evidence that there was a tremendous catastrophe over northern, central, more or less, North America, 13,000 years ago. And when Googling, or I suppose back then Alta Vista or whatever the hell we were using, such terms, we stumbled across this paper that you had just put on the web. And you had concluded, or speaking for others through the years, that something may have happened 13,000 years ago that was a tremendous catastrophe and centered over North America, totally independently. He'd never heard of Carolina Bays. So that's always interesting in science when yeah. two different groups come to the same conclusion through different you know, pathways. So I started working with them and they published a paper. Um, actually, they got in touch with me in the late 90s. They published a paper in um, 2021, I mean, excuse me, 2001. And that went nowhere because they kind of took it in the wrong direction. Uh, but they did claim there was a catastrophe and claimed that they had physical evidence for it at the paleo boundary between the Pleistocene and the Holocene, which is noted for a 1,200-year cold period called the Younger Dryas. They published that paper, and then, then no, I'm going on long here. In 2005, I joined up with a subsequent team of very eminent researchers. Firestone was as well. But they said uh, to Dr. Firestone, we'd like to come – and with your help and collaboration, revise your hypothesis for what happened back then and try to find more physical evidence and see whether we can get it published in a major journal. And I joined that team as, um, you know, as a civilian, as a non-credentialed scientist. But I was on all the emails, the calls, helped out where I could, collected evidence where I could. And then in 2007, we published a paper in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Science, which is a top three journal. Um, providing evidence for that terrible climate crash and what caused the Younger Dryas and the Carolina Bays were some of that first evidence. It has now taken a very back seat because our other evidence is much better. And Carolina Bays are so controversial that we don't include it. And even some people on our team do not think that Carolina Bays were related to it. So that is a long introductory explanation, Sean. But that's I, I, how I got into this. Yeah, I, yeah. I appreciate all that a lot of info. And, and and I got a couple more things about the Carolina Bays, and then we'll, we'll just keep moving forward here. So yeah. one thing I want to make sure everybody sees is how big they are. So like so when you look at some of this LIDAR stuff, and I do have the, what is it, Michael Davios, who has the yeah. the, the Google Earth uh, overlays or whatever, who you can oh. kind of, you can see it all. It's great. Um, but not only are they densely, you know, packed over the whole landscape, they're, they're, they're gigantic. So like- They're enormous. Um, I, I have this picture up. I think uh, people can see it where they're, they're equating this. Uh, they have a, a pig farm and you can see they're right in the middle of the screen yeah. here, how big the, the, the Carolina bays actually are. And I want to show you like they're overlapped, right? So you can see them. They're so densely covering that they're, it's a, it's a bombardment. You know, we talked about if there's something coming from That's above, right. it's a bombardment across the landscape. That's right. And they reach um, to some degree, they're more, most frequent in the Carolinas, but they reach from New Jersey to Louisiana. 
right? So they're in driving distance of probably 60 million Americans, and no one's ever heard of them because they're so subtle on the ground, you can't tell. All you know is you've hit kind of a dense herbaceous forest, or you've hit a different soil type in an open field. And the the very subtle change, the rim, they're all, they all have a rim around them. And if they're in a perfect, pristine condition, that'll catch your attention. But in people, anyone on the East Coast that has driven down I-95 has passed thousands upon thousands of Carolina Bays and been looking at it, but didn't know of it because you've got to look from above. And that's why Google Earth has been a blessing and LIDAR has been particularly cool. And, and the one other thing I want to talk about the Carolina Bays is their orientation. Um, Mm -hmm. And so let me pull up this. uh, If you guys can see, um, and I'll bring up the, 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 uh, what we have over here and what is Nebraska, but you can see the, uh, um, the, the orientation, as as you can see, as you pointed out, New Jersey to all the way down to, as you said, Alabama um, or whatever it is you can see that they're littered. And these are, um, each one of the ellipse that is on the ground also has an orientation and the orientation slightly alters as you kind of go from North to South exactly matching what we find over here in Nebraska, um, which has a orientation as well. And if you draw all these back and you find a bullseye here ish, uh, which I believe is Saginaw Bay. Um, I found that overwhelmingly compelling to, a origin spot. I I, I don't yeah. understand how how wind and some uh, you know persistent winds are going to cause such a gigantic widespread ellipse all over and again in Nebraska and all have an orientation back to to a spot. So I find this super compelling. And if if Ben wants to jump in with some uh, questions after you after you kind of elaborate on this orientation here, this might be a good time to bring Ben in. But um, I, I found the orientation on top of the 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 size of those. Again, overwhelming, compelling that the the mainstream version is just impossible. Go ahead, Ben. I've um, gone on at some length, and I'll respond to your observations. So, I, as someone who is a complete novice to all of this, um, walk me through what is the how does this happen? Because this seems far too uh, coincidental to be an actual coincidence with what you're saying. So just give me the broad view for those of us who have not gone down this particular rabbit hole, but are open-minded to pretty much anything. Let's go at a thousand feet. What's, what is the overview? What should people know about this? What are the implications? That's right. And I, I guarantee any of your listeners, it is a fabulous rabbit hole. If they have the slightest interest in this, go ahead and scratch out the next six to eight hours with your wife and just say, <laughs> honey, I'm going down the hole, man. And it could even go much further than that. I mean, you can end up spending years looking at it. But, you know, like any mystery, you don't know what caused them. And I am still undecided and I'll tell you where I am, but what, what, what caused them was either a very crafty wind, a wind that managed to both influence things in one part of the country and a whole swath of another part of the country influence it in a methodical way, almost as if that wind was just emerging perfectly. And let me tell you my outstanding problem with the terrestrialists. And I know some of them very well, and some of them are on our publishing team for the Younger Dryas event. So you got to, you know, I keep an open mind both ways. Um, 
but the the terrestrialists, if you will, the the more recent data that's been obtained, and there should be much more because we could explain this ultimately, but suggest they suggest that Carolina bays began forming. Um, I don't have the exact dates at hand, uh, but say seventy thousand years ago, and went through seventy, sixty. Uh, uh, through 20,000 years or so of formation, and then they stopped forming. And then they picked up and started forming again and stopped and picked up and started forming again with each interval between the formation periods um, separated by up to 10,000 years, you know, millennia. Now, my first problem is why would you not be able to see classes of them? in some form or fashion where here are the old ones because they look old and they're pointed slightly different. Here's the next time this phenomenon happened and you see they don't look quite as beat up and they're pointed slightly different, but it would require a, a wind that emerged and then came back in exactly the same with the exact same dynamic 10,000 years later or more. That just doesn't add up to me because what I believe and what I'll say, you know, as a personal sticking point on this is that whatever in the hell happened, it all happened at once. And I think it happened instantly. Okay. So that leads you to very few terrestrial uniformitarian, as you call it in geology explanations, and it leads you to catastrophic explanations. And that field of study, which is long um, muted in geology is called catastrophism. And I am a catastrophist as a result of this stuff. And a catastrophic explanation would be something came from above. But here's the important thing. No one, including a good friend, and I'm glad you're a fan, Sean, Antonio Zamora, which I recommend, or Michael um, Davius, um, who's got a wonderful website at carolinabaysurvey.com. And Antonio Zamora can be found um, on YouTube easily. But none of us believe that they were caused by objects that slammed into the location of the Carolina Bay. They aren't craters. And that was hypothesized back in the 30s. And even back then, they ran out in them. Two guys from the University of Oklahoma dug in them um, looking for the iron rock or the stony meteorite, right? Looking for the objects. And they didn't find them. And that was supposed to be a problem at first. And it did cause them a problem because they were wrong. They weren't direct craters. What everyone who, you know, is interested in their catastrophic causes now believes is that they may have been secondary impact craters. Because at that time in Michigan, in the north, there was a, um, two miles of ice up there. There was an ice sheet that was melting 13,000 years ago and many, many you know, thousands of years before that. Um, and if something slammed into it of a cosmic nature and it's two miles thick, you're not going to see a ordinary crater beneath it. You might see something that looks like Saginaw Bay, um, but you're not going to find a crater like you see out in Arizona. But what it would definitely do is kick that ice into the lower atmosphere and for lack of a better term, you know, you've had hypersonic ice boulders <laughs> launched into um, not quite to orbit that would have spent about nine minutes or so arcing their way across the country like a blood spatter pattern, right? And that's a good way to think of it. And oftentimes you'll find those kind of effects in the Tunguska explosion up in Russia. When you have those kind of concussive events and 
uh, you know, uh, hypersonic winds and all that kind of stuff. When you hit something kicked up like that, it'll, it'll go into a butterfly pattern that it's not surprising that you're going to see it fall separately. And it also, where you see the bays, and this is the key part of Antonio Zamora's approach, is when those hypersonic ice boulders kicked from the ice sheet landed again, it would have been immediately preceded by an earthquake, a very, very powerful earthquake. And if you take the sandy coastal plain in North Carolina in the south and shake it with the groundwater being so shallow, you get what's called um, earthquake liquefaction, right? And you can actually find pictures of cars sunk in Japan and whole, you know, uh, apartment buildings, you know, that have sunk down into the ground because it turns into a slurry, solid ground turns into a slurry. So you would have a slurry of sand, you'd have the ice slam into it. It would have left as Antonia has shown in, in scaled down experiments an ellipse. And that's important. Every Carolina Bay is a perfect ellipse. And it's very surprising. You can see other depressions around the world that are circular in nature. And those are always pointed out by the terrestrialists, but they, they never are each one a perfect mathematical ellipse. And that's what we see, particularly in, in North Carolina, South Carolina, they become a little bit more deformed as you go North and South, but that would be expected too. think about the blood spatter pattern, right? You, you're going to have a band of them that are very similar and as it moves away from the arc of where they fall, you're going to see it kind of change a little bit. So then, of course, the ice would have been melted and you would have had very little traditional crater evidence. So, again, another long explanation, but the uh, the subject deserves it sometimes, even if I'm not the person to get it. <laughs> so does that help, Ben? So you had something come in, slams in the ice sheet, kicks up the ice. You have a slurry of sand and then you end up with those pot marks. And they're creating the ellipse because if you pass the shock wave that accompanies, now that remember these things were had, you know, exceeded the speed of sound coming in. So they would have had a shock wave in front of them. And that shock wave takes the form energetically of a cone, you know, where most of the power is very up front and it goes out. And if you take a cone, dunce cap, you know, and pass it through a flat plane, you end up with an ellipse. So that was Antonio's insight, that the ellipses suggest that a cone of energy passed through that flat surface. And his second insight was that it would have been preceded by liquefaction of the soils. So I'll be quiet for a minute. Yeah, and I feel like I put up an image that kind of shows that um, uh, cone that you're, you're describing mm -hmm. and the, 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 the seemingly perfectly ratioed ellipses there um, in this image here too. So... Um, yeah, so I, I, I want to, uh, let's see, I, where do I want to go? Let's, um, so you mentioned the 13,000 years, which yeah. um, we want to move forward now to the younger Dryas impact hypothesis in, in whole, I guess, since the Carolina Bays was my introduction to that um, and your contribution to that at the beginning. And now I, obviously you've moved on to even bigger and better things here, but I want to yeah. talk about the, the temperature changes. I feel like when I talk about the younger Dryas to anybody who, you know, I'm trying to introduce those to, I talk about the massive and such rapid temperature changes. So, cause obviously we are inundated with uh, uh, climate uh, change alarmists yeah. telling us how uh, the 
minuscule amount of warming that has happened over the last uh, uh, measurable uh, amount of time that we have is, is here is dwarfed in comparison to what actually happened uh, at the beginning and the end of that uh, 11, 1200 year, year period. So why don't you talk about the temperature changes, if you could? I don't know if that's something yeah. that uh, you have some uh, input on. I, ha I do have an image that I could show that kind of dates back oh, about, please do. Um, um, yeah. a little bit more than 15,000 years. Um, and then maybe yeah. you can uh, touch on that if, if you uh, are so inclined. So yeah. um, here, here it is. And like I said, this kind of dates back from uh, present time here. And then it goes back uh, again here 15,000 years. And the shaded area this 12,800 to 11,006 year before present is what we know as the Younger Dryas. That's right. And that's the iconic example of abrupt climate change and has been used for years to suggest that um, since we're poking the beast, supposedly poking the beast of climate, that sometimes that, that there are examples in the past, obviously we weren't around, where climate can suddenly snap. Okay, so it's very important to understand that the Younger Dryas is well-accepted mainstream science, but it's considered a mystery because there's no good mechanism for how it happened. And if you ask what happened and, and, and what did happen was um, temperatures in North America um, dropped, uh, excuse me, in the Northern Hemisphere, dropped 20 degrees on average, and they actually rose in the Southern Hemisphere. So the, the world's climate just went suddenly haywire. Um, and there are other dramatic changes, such as mass extinctions that we can discuss as well. But that was a terrible, terrible time for planet Earth. And that is absolutely acknowledged by mainstream science. The question is what caused it? If you ask one of those scientists what caused it, they would first tell you it's a mystery. Then you'd say, well, give me a little bit more than that. They'd say, well, the Gulf Stream shut down. And again, that's well accepted today. And you'd say, well, what caused the Gulf Stream to shut down? They said, well, a, a whole bunch of fresh water poured into it off the Canadian ice sheet from Lake Agassiz, which was a giant glacial lake in Canada. And they say, well, what caused that lake to suddenly burst and pour out into the Gulf Stream? They'd say, well, we don't know. Right. That uh, sometimes glaciers just let go of their lakes and we can see examples of that, you know, in modern times. But it's not very satisfying because it was so dramatic. And as you can see, there's some swings before that. But here's the interesting thing about the Younger Dryas, and maybe those swings had similar causes. But fortunately, the other thing that graph shows is how wonderful it's been since then. The Younger Dryas breaks just as suddenly as it um, as it starts. And then today we've had uh, an unprecedented 13,000 years of very, very, very stable climate. But the question is, in the dramatic swings that climate experienced for several hundred thousand years before that, that we have records for, this one is distinguished by having caused the extinction of more than 250 different species of animals went extinct during the Younger Dryas. And they had survived other climate swings in the past. If you drug that graph back, you can see over time that there've been other events like that. Nothing so recent as the Younger Dryas are so well-defined, but climate had swung around and there were no mass extinctions. 
But again, 250 species go extinct, including, you know, all sorts of wild fauna. And remember, this is not the dinosaur impact was 65 million years ago. You know, that's 5,000 times longer ago than this was. If you drew a timeline from where I am to somewhere out in the Pacific Ocean, this event would only be down at the 7-Eleven two or three blocks from here, right? It, it is um, very, very recent geological time, you know, approximately three times the um, the, uh, the pyramids construction in times, you know, if the pyramids were construction constructed 4,500 years ago, so it's about three times that long ago, people walked the earth, modern homo sapiens walked the earth, and the culture in North America at the time was called the Clovis people. That was the first um, widespread Indian, Native American, indigenous culture in North America. And there's a lot of speculation about previous uh, peoples that may have come there, but there's nothing, uh, nobody disputes that the first widespread tool producing people in North America were these people called the Clovis people. And they are known for their beautiful spear points, right? That's a plastic one because this would be a very, very expensive item. That's the, I guess the type point for Clovis right there. And, and you find these uh, arrowheads from Seattle to Miami to Tierra de Fuego. And in the 1960s, I think politically motivated, although I'm sure they thought they were correct, but I think the narrative was politically helpful for good reasons. Um, a guy named Paul Martin said that the Clovis people were responsible for hunting all of those animals to extinction. Now, that's kind of a convenient political narrative, and it has some truth to it, because at the time, we were coming to understand that humans are rapacious. We did not give a damn about species protection until the late 60s and the 70s when we passed the Endangered Species Act, which needed to be done. And that the narrative was that we're so bad and we are so naturally so bad to our environment that we even caused the extinction of all these wonderful animals. And let's talk about that would be the mammoth, the mastodon, uh, the saber-toothed tiger, the giant ground sloth, the size of a damn school bus, right? The American, the American camel, exactly. The American lion, the short-faced cave bear, on and on and on and on. North America used to look like the African savanna on steroids. And then there were also um, creatures like the Glyptodon, which was an armadillo the size of a golf cart. Now imagine, because <clears throat> the Clovis people are only here for two or 300 years. It's a strange credulity to suggest that a hunter-gatherer tribe, even of great hunting proficiency, could have come into North America during a bitterly, bitterly cold time and hunted every single one of those animals down. Think uh, it's an insult to Africa. They've been hunting elephants for thousands of years, too. We still have elephants. Now, we've put a big herding on elephants. We need to watch our act, right? But we hadn't hunted them all down. And imagine the glyptodon. Who the hell eats the last armadillo? <laughs> While there's still one bison around or a bird or anything else to eat, who eats the last cave bear? Who's the last guy in the cave to get the last cave bear when you still had ducks, right? 
There's just no way we hunted all that stuff down. But it was a mystery that then became a poor explanation in service of a political agenda that is somewhat justified, but was science was abused in that case. And that that's all become, I think that that crowd, they call it overkill hypothesis, uh, is waning now. And we're trying to replace that with the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, which is somewhat like I described before, but let's separate it from the Carolina Bays, which is that 13,000 years ago, or more accurately, my estimation, about 12,887 years ago in June, there's reason to believe it was in June, um, that we experienced a couple of days of bombardments of comet fragments from a comet that had been fragmenting in the solar system at that time for probably 7,000 years. It probably came in 20,000 years ago and then it began to fragment and it had a solar orbit and we crossed that orbit um, twice a year in late June and late October and November. And it's like crossing a highway blindfolded. Most of the time you're gonna make it across the highway, but occasionally you're gonna hit rush hour traffic. And 13,000 years ago, we hit a patch of it that had a lot of chunks. And most of those would have exploded in the atmosphere, much like nuclear bombs without the radiation. And then there would have been others that would have made it to the ground. And those could be anything from oceanic impacts to misdated craters we see today, or perhaps the majority of them hit in the far north, and it would have hit the ice sheet and you wouldn't see the large craters. So I'll pause here, but that's the Younger Dryas impact hypothesis, and it's been debated now for 15 years. So, and just to piggyback on what you had talked about with these giant megafauna, we do have these anomalies as the uh, hordes of frozen mammoth or instant frozen mammoth with food still yeah. in its stomach and its mouth. So there's some other anomalies where you're like, okay, that didn't happen. The Clovis did not, you know, they yeah. didn't have instant freezing uh, capabilities back then. So um, there are some additional anomalies that kind of throw, you know, water on the idea that uh, these, these megafauna were, were hunted to extinction by the Clovis. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. What, what, this is going to be a complete side sideball. And if you have no answers, yeah, I, I will not. So the Venus fly traps were originated <laughs> in Wilmington, North Carolina. Is that a right. fair, fair assessment? Well, now you're taking me way out on the hairy edge. Yeah, now, so I, that's what I like to do. So yeah. I, since I've become aware of this, I do. I did a lot of vacationing in Oak Island, uh, North Carolina. Oh, really? The, uh, yeah. yeah, the Brun the Brunswick Islands down there. I really like that. Uh, we have long talked about moving down there, but um, awesome. anyway, I've gone down. I've been down to Oak Island several, several times. Um, I don't know. I these the, the Venus flytrap origins coming from that general vicinity and then having all this uh, weirdness around this area made me think that maybe they're related. Can you call me a crazy? Well, I included that in my, that first speculative paper I wrote. Okay. Right. I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh yeah. But for instance, it's never made it onto my blog and things like that. Cause I try to keep it in the road these days and stick to the public <laughs> science, you know? Um, but, but it, so that is rank, rank speculation, but let's just think about it that you've got this unusual feature found nowhere else in the world the Carolina Bays, they're most highly concentrated within 75 miles of Wilmington, North Carolina, which is a perfect overlay for the Venus flytrap, the iconic meat-eating plant of the Southeast. And But let me take you a little bit further on that. Please do. Yeah, that there is no higher concentration of meat-eating plants anywhere in the world 
They're within 75 miles of Wilmington, North Carolina. There are, I think, five or six species. You can go to the darkest corners of Borneo, the deepest part of the Amazon, the wildest parts of the Congo, and you will not find meat-eating plants in the abundance that you find at the highest concentration of Carolina bays. Isn't that weird? That is super weird, but... Again, yeah. just pile it on to the super fascinating things about this area. That you you had mentioned this uh, 11, 1200 year period. Uh, what a time to be alive! There's got to be yeah, a movie man. plot out there where somebody can uh, write a movie where we're all uh, finding the, the the origins of the Venus flytrap along the way. So it would be a crazy time if I had to pick one time to be alive. That would be it for sure. So, um, yeah. One more thing, just to kind of anyway. so. We're looking for, okay, we, this hypothesis is out there, but there has to be proof, right? There there's needs evidence. You need uh, yeah. to be able to be like, hey, there's a, a bunch of sites, if you will, to kind of confirm this uh, a hypothesis. So where, where, where do we yeah. find this? What do we find? Where, and, and how prevalent are they? No, it's a great question. So on, if you're going to publish papers, and remember, we had that first big paper in, in 2007. We actually went to the American Geophysical Union um, a World Congress, Hemispheric Congress in uh, Acapulco, Mexico, to present the paper and had a number of presentations and whatnot. And the essence of our evidence, and this is the original hack of this team, because we've had to work with very, very little funding. That may be changing soon, actually. Nice. But the best way to get the biggest buck for any kind of forensic research at that time was to go to well-dated archaeological sites that had been long understood to show this time period because they would have Clovis points and mammoths and they would test that time period and that soil layer right there. And it would be 13,000 years old. So there are a number of sites around the United States and elsewhere where mainstream science absolutely agrees that that period is 13,000 years ago. So what Dr. West and Dr. Kennett and Dr. Bunch and, and others of the leading lights, the qualified and credentialed people on our team, they said, what we're going to do is go to those well-accepted sites and we're going to test the soil all the way down the face. And remember, soil gets older and older as you go lower. And if you get at certain places, you can find where it's been a grading for 13,000 years, where it's just been adding to itself. So you have modern soil all the way down to ancient soil. And if you test that soil, you're testing what happened at that time. As you go across that face, you find an extraordinary phenomenon. That's called the black map. And maybe you could Google that up. I, ha I have a picture. Give me one you second. You got a black map? Yep, picture? You're the man, Sean. I love it, man. <laughs> the black this map. This is my favorite. This is my one of my, other than Jeffrey Epstein, this is my favorite topic. Go ahead. Oh, yeah. That's great, man. You're my kind of guy, dude. <laughs> Yeah. So the black mat, as you bring that up, is the damnedest geological phenomena that you could imagine. And it is analogous to what science geeks might know as the KT boundary, <coughs> the KT boundary, which is the boundary between dinosaurs and no dinosaurs. And in 1980, um, Luis Alvarez and his son published, Walter and Luis Alvarez published a series of papers that said 65 million years ago in the rock. Now, remember, this is soil. One day it'll turn into rock and perhaps look like what we're going to talk about that Alvarez has found. But in rock that we know is 65 million years ago, there is a band of clay 
that it looks different. Now it's rock now, but it formerly would have been clay, et cetera. So there was a distinct band that you did not see again in the rock sequence, either before or below. And the dinosaur bones were only found below it. No one has ever found a dinosaur bone above the KT boundary. So that, by the time we came along, and they had to fight that out like hell, but great books written on it. And by 1994, they found their crater because that was clearly a, a major crater producing of that. And it changed the world's climate for sure, too. Um, but look at the Younger Dryas boundary as an analogy to that. So our scientists went to this as Murray Springs that you're showing that beautiful picture up. And that's one of the iconic sites that demonstrates the black mat. Now, notice below it how the soil, although it changes in color, it changes right at that black band, and then it's never the same color again. So that's almost like a timeline of history. And we, um, the last two geological periods, the current geological period is called the Holocene, and it's preceded by the Pleistocene. In mainstream science, again, that cutoff between the Holocene and the Pleistocene comes at the end of the Younger Dryas, right where that black mat is. So our team went in and tested the soil across there, and looked for proxies for impacts, for cosmic objects, just as the comet dinosaur team did. Um, and those proxies include geochemical evidence. Do certain, um, uh, uh, you know, is certain of the geochemistry demonstrating things that are more abundant in cosmic objects than our own Earth, like platinum and iridium? And platinum has become our defining uh, rare earth metal, where at that boundary, it's extraordinarily elevated in something that you wouldn't otherwise find in such abundance on earth. And then next, as you have a picture up, it is chock-a-block full relatively of spherules. And those spherules are molten terrestrial material and soil, perhaps mixed with some of the impactor itself, because in the air burst that would have occurred, it would have vaporized the material as well. It would have mixed with a molten hell of this material in the atmosphere that was really, you know, up there cooking in a just a fireballs all over the earth at 4,000 degrees centigrade, six or 7,000 degrees. I mean, this is intensely hot. So it melts metals. And you can go and say that um, chromium would only melt at this temperature and this other metal will melt at that temperature. And you'll find a molten because they're up in there in a molten hell state. And then they cool enough to freeze. And when that vapor freezes, it freezes into those little spherules. And those were very key evidence in the comet dinosaur interaction. So our team went, looked at something 5,000 times more recent and said, we find the same things you find at the comet dinosaur boundary. And we also only find the megafauna, the Pleistocene megafauna, those animals we described, that it is only found below the black mat and never above the black mat. And we'll get to the black mat in a second. And in addition, we never find a Clovis point above the black mat. And in fact, it is kind of a, you know, field knowledge that Western archaeologists and paleontologists used to know that as they dug and began a dig, they know they were getting to paleo soils when they hit the black mat. And they never published on it because they never really looked at it closely. But when we looked at just below the black mat, you discover this kind of breath of hell. 
And you find impact glasses too, where things carbon has been molten into glass, you know, as it's been kicked up in this firestorm. And also carbon spherules, where carbon has uh, become molten and vaporized and gasified, and it goes back into these little spherules. So you find all of these impact proxies just below the black mat. And then the black mat, and a lot of people don't understand this, is not um, is not from the destruction itself. It's from the aftermath. That so there was not, a it's, not, it's not ash, right? That's right. It's not ash. What it is is algae. <laughs> okay. Is that we had a wasteland for two hundred, two or three hundred years, and that matted gook, the 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 covered North America at that time, has now shows itself as a black band, and then immediately below it, you find those impact proxies. So, I'm going to pull up this image. You're, I mean, we showed the images of the spheroes, and you, they, yeah. they were all those spheroes were at different sites. Um, I'm going to pull up this. Uh, uh, image here and I love it, man. There are sites everywhere, right? So, um, these are the ones in North America. Uh, I'm guessing we referenced or you referenced, uh, yeah. uh some of these already today, but I do see there, uh, some over here in, uh, Europe and the middle East. Uh, so are these all similar proxies that are being found at these sites, even across the Atlantic? Absolutely. Everywhere we've looked, we found them. Okay. And that should continue wherever you go. And it's fact, it's continued a little, uh, well, actually a, a good bit past this graph. If you rewrote that graph again, it would reach all the way down to Southern Chile. Okay. Where we found a site called Palauco that shows the black map. Well, it's not the black map, but a, a change at that time. And it's actually a visible change in the soil. But up in, in, in Europe, um, in Northern Europe, they call them the uh, Northern European cover sands. And their uh, cover, you know, most of the Netherlands, you know, is, is sand, almost like the North Carolina. And you find the Ursulo boundary there, which had mystified uh, geologists up there for 150 years, that if you went down a couple of meters anywhere, uh, you know, in, um, in Holland and in, in Belgium and the Netherlands, and even into Germany, um, you would find a very distinct black band with nothing like it afterwards and nothing like it before. So that suggests that this was global in effect, just as the cooling was, and that something horrific happened at that time that blew all those animals away. Not instantly, you know, some of them persisted. In fact, mammoths lived till 4,000 years ago. There was a refugia of mammoths up in um, an Arctic Island, Northern side, you know, off the, coast of Arctic Siberia, um, there were still mammoths. So, and some things survived in different forms, like the bison went from a gigantic bison, you call bison antiquus to the modern bison, which is smaller. And then, but some went completely away. The mammoth, for instance, right, is totally extinct. And what happened is during that wasteland period, it had, it had affected their ecosystem and habitat so greatly that, yeah, they might have hung on for a couple of hundred years, but eventually they blinked out. They didn't have the, the scale any longer to continue to breed and be successful. And one other thing I wanted to talk about, and I, and I don't have a map, so I failed here miserably, on the uh, water level, the, the sea level changes that occurred at similar time, right? So we have, uh, I, have I do have an image of uh, what I think they call melt, 
uh, Meltwater Pulse 1A, 1B. I don't have the, the, the actual coastline of North America, for example, or the global coastline that actually shows the what, what North America or the rest of the, the world would have looked like or the land would have looked like uh, before uh, yeah. or during the, you know, before the, the Younger Dryas. But I, you can see that there's obviously a significant amount of land uh, lost after this event happened. Um, sure. But it seemed to happen in, in, in two different stages, which again, they have uh, 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 Meltwater Pulse 1A and 1B. Were those at the one at the beginning and one at the end of the Younger Dryas or were those different times? That, no, 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 that, that, that's exactly right. And I'm not an expert in the, in the water level, but it's uh, the, the understanding by mainstream science. Remember, this is not the kooky stuff. You, they, you're just trying to explain all of these uh, inexplicable mysteries that the sea level rose some 600 feet. Um, the, the North Carolina coast, for instance, was the, uh, the was 60 or 90 miles further out in the Atlantic at the time. And there's a dramatic pulse right there. Now, then what happened, though, remember, you had all that cold. So what happened is it it it, it slammed into the the ice sheet was completely destabilized and shattered. And it sloughed off with all of the, the lake water that existed on a lake multiple si times the size of the Great Lakes called Lake Agassiz. So Lake Agassiz goes into the North Atlantic and that um, fresh water cuts off the Gulf Stream because the Gulf Stream depends on a certain kind of salinity. And all of a sudden you didn't have that, that uh, thermohaline circulation, they call it, that causes the Gulf Stream. So it shuts that off. Well, that ice too, probably would have sloughed off and in the immediate aftermath, largely melted. But then the climate changed so that it stabilized. You've got a huge input of water and then things froze up again and the glaciers started re-advancing. And that's well understood mainstream science. So actually at the time, we were um, a little bit warmer than we are today, even though your graph didn't show that, but I know that's true in your previous okay. graph, or it didn't, didn't demonstrate correctly. I'd have to look at it again. But, but right before the Younger Dryas, it was as warm or warmer it is today, but you had two miles of ice, right? Still left over, like a slow-melting ice cube on the north. And then when the cold came back, it got back to full glacial conditions, and the ice started growing again. So that would have taken away water, at least stabilized the release of water. But then remember what happens at the end of the Younger Dryas? You get a dramatic warming. And that would have halted and then reversed the accumulation of ice, and that water would have gone in. So that's why you get two jumps in sea level. You've right. got, yeah. yeah so that's so not I, water one and that uh, pulses 1A and 1B. And so, hey, Sean, real quick, yeah. I apologize. I'm having all kinds of technical issues over here. If I end up getting kicked out, I am very sorry. I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just not really sure what happened to my phone right now. You got it. We'll, 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 uh, Probably it's as long as it's not for boredom, Ben. Not at all. I'm <laughs> enthralled. I'm just all of a sudden I got kicked out because my phone got too hot. And I was like, I, I didn't know that was a thing. All right. I guess. Isn't that I weird? Yeah. Yeah, man. So I, I'll put up that uh, the temperature uh, graph again here. So um, if that helps, that kind of illustrate what we were just talking about, how where the meltwater would have happened uh, at the beginning of the shaded area and then a second would have occurred at the end of the shaded area. Is that correct? That's right. One kind of through destabilization that you actually, you know, the ice would have broken apart and the tremendous lake in Canada would have released. And then you have a cold period afterwards where 
sea level stabilizes and then it warms dramatically. And what a wonderful day that must have been for planet <laughs> Earth. I mean, it's just perfect for a movie, right? Yes, it is. You know, it's got three parts. You know, it's got the well, the lead up, the disaster, the the 1,200 years of turmoil, and then you get this rebirth of the Earth. And that's so clearly represented in that graph. And that's when things started coming back. But we were a different world after that, Sean. Yeah. I, like I said, I, I have definitely, you know, I'm not a, a, a script writer by any means, but I have thought a movie set in that time frame would be awesome. So would it be cool as hell? Yeah. I mean, yeah. as long as as long as uh, folks like yourself were behind the uh, actual uh, technical uh, advisement of that movie, then yes, I guess I wouldn't want it to be. Uh, well, there's always about things. terrestrial Carolina Bays in that movie, but yeah, 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 it, it, it's going to come. Uh, things like that are going to come. There, there, there's a, a, a multi-part series coming out that'll be of interest to anybody that's fascinated by these subjects that should be on a major streaming platform within this year. And that's probably all I'll say about that. Oh, we're awesome. we're going to get some good screen time out of that and that'll be an eight-part series that will include a lot of the younger dryas awesome and um and even some of the more speculative uh, speculative stuff um like graham hancock's work you know there, there's a whole another universe of these kind of studies <coughs> that preceded our forensic evidence of this catastrophe since the time of plato you know plato said you know, 350 BC, I believe that 9,000 years before my own time, there was a tremendous catastrophe in the waters, the ocean swallowed up a civilization and, you know, that's called Atlantis. And that's immediately when people change the radio station, at least some of them and say, okay, we have drifted into Atlanta studies and, and we're sensitive to that, you know, because it just sounds like something your, your kooky aunt reads, Right. Well, uh, similar in nature, maybe you'll find this. I, I uh, classify myself as unreligious, but when I, this conversation ever comes up, I always like I'm unreligious, but I believe there was a global flood, and that usually yeah. allows me to there you go, man. bring it right to the the you know this you know I, I'm not trying to uh, I I feel like people like yourself and and, yeah. and others have pointed out enough information where you could buy a biblical type flood actually happen in human history, and that's right, you know, and I've said I I. Obviously, unless we uh, can go back and check the uh, actually physically put ourselves back in time, I think all religions were may have been birthed out of an event like this at some point in human history. Very fair speculation, man. And, you know, um, that isn't just Christians that say that there was a global flood. There sure. are other 350 flood myths, well-defined flood myths, well-documented around the world. Virtually every culture on Earth says that long before our time, there was a tremendous catastrophe. And many of them say there were people there before that happened and that they taught us later what we needed to know to thrive as we do today. And that's where Graham Hancock comes in. And those are the books that he has written. He has taken our science and he wrote his um, first book on that subject, Finger of Prince of the Gods in 1995. And I was already kind of well into this stuff. And I read it and I was like, yeah, he, he almost gets it, you know, but it was a comet impact. And he had talked about kind of some other causes, but he did define the younger Dryas and said that that might've been the cause. And Graham and I have since become very good friends, but what it did to people like Graham, who were really way out on the speculatory plank there, 
they were saying that were precursor civilizations in a catastrophe. Neither of them were anywhere near being proven. What we brought to the table was the catastrophe. And I generally stick to that. And the Comet Research Group, which is our collections of scientists around the world that publish regularly on this, absolutely sticks to it. There aren't any big Atlantis folks in there. They are all serious material forensic scientists, laboratory people, right? They had no time for Atlantis. But that doesn't mean that people who had speculated about all the rest of human history didn't weren't thrilled to see our discovery because then they had the catastrophe. And then I get to play in that sandbox because I got nothing to lose, right? I got no pending grants. I don't have to see anybody in the faculty lounge. I got nothing to lose. So I get to kind of play in both sandboxes. And that's why Graham's a good friend. And um, I don't think everything he says has been proven, but I think it's much more worthy of being investigated and taken seriously because the catastrophe, in my opinion, has been proven. Yeah. Okay. So let, let me, I don't know if pushback is the right word on there, but let me yeah. just throw out an alternative uh, hypothesis and you can shoot it down wherever it has. So maybe this is similar along the lines of what Robert Schock talks about. He, he talks about, a, I think he calls it a solar outburst. That's right. And if you were, and if you were going to pair a uh, catastrophe, but it has to be cyclical, the sun goes, does go through cycles that we can measure mm-hmm. now. Uh, any thought of whether or not a, uh, I don't know, like a micronova event that would have been uh, in relation to these solar cycles could have produced similar proxies on the ground through the heat, uh, through some gigantic lightning or some kind of uh, uh, magnetic or electrical uh I don't know, something that, that came from the sun. Any, any thoughts to, to my, yeah, that's a, you know, um, it's funny when you kind of, when you get any kind of grouping of people, they immediately split off themselves. <laughs> and then, so if you say catastrophists and the people that believe, study, write and speculate that there was a tremendous catastrophe 13,000 years ago, they split off into groups themselves. And that sometimes can be just as nasty as the people who believe that nothing happened and our whole way of thinking is incorrect. And that's kind of what's happened here that um, I respect Robert Schock to a degree. I've read his books. Um, I've met Robert briefly and he's obviously known Graham Hancock for a long time, but Graham would say the same thing I would. And the same thing that some of the scientists in our team who've looked at Schock's work would say, he just hadn't proven it. Right. We've got more than 45 papers showing um, evidence that there was a, a, a tremendous high heat event and also that we've been repeatedly interacting with the torrid meteor stream. And kind of in the, there've been obviously a number of, I'll tell you this, Sean, first of all, I'm more worried about solar outbursts, CMEs, coronal mass ejections as a personal threat to me, my family and our way of living than I am comments. Right. Okay. I think yeah. it's absolutely terrifying. You know, one happened in 2012 that was pointed the wrong, the right way or the wrong way, depending on how you look at it, that had it been pointed towards Earth and not, you know, ejected from the other side of the sun, it would have been lights out. The Carrington event in 1858, it would be lights out today. We can't handle lights out. We can't have every chip fried. We would be eating each other within a month. And I believe that could happen within our lifetimes. Probably not odds on, but you go take another four or five lifetimes out, which is within our caring about our kids and our grandkids, and that could happen. 
yeah. where the event that we're describing, I think, is relatively rare, right, it, in relation to that. Okay. So to say that I don't, you know, I, I'm very concerned and think it's, it's a, you know, a worthy field of study. I do not think the forensic evidence that we find and have published again and again and again um, suggests a, 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 a sun cause, but rather some kind of um, cosmic impact. And, and I don't know if you've had any interaction with Ben Davidson. He runs a site over suspicious observers. I find that his uh, work pretty fascinating. He he kind of uh, tries to provide, I think, what you're looking for, studies or uh, papers or whatnot, or articles, as he calls them, that are are, are more sympathetic to the solar outburst thing. So I don't know if you're familiar with him or or, or not, but I would, I don't know. He's I, I find his, his the idea that the, uh, you know, the sun is, I say, underestimated, as you just pointed out, uh, by our society is, again, terrifying, but also super fascinating. Yeah, it is. And and the thing there is that um, if you had that event, it wouldn't have um, affected the Clovis people terribly, right? But they would right. affect us, right? I mean, we're so dependent on the thin veneer of technology. We're so extraordinarily fragile and have built our, uh, our electronics um, based on an assumption that um, you're not going to encounter that kind of high energy, electrical, energetic event. And that is a false assumption. So, yeah, it's out there and you can't comment on the Younger Dryas um, event on any kind of YouTube or, you know, uh, forum accompanied media without having the CME people weighed in. But they need to publish some papers. Got it. Right. So, so um, I guess I'll wrap up with this and you can fill in anything that we may have missed here before uh, we do this, but um, about anything about the Carolina Bays, about uh, Younger Dryas, about anything. But I want to talk about what I feel like we just had a conversation. If that was taught in a, I don't know, a geology class, a history class, a something class uh, when yeah. I was a kid in elementary school, high school, whatnot, as soon as I was able to kind of uh, understand some of these concepts, I think that subject would have been fascinating. So I'm wondering why it's not taught now. Is it just because the uh, scientists haven't died off yet? Excellent question, Sean. And that gets into the kind of the sociology of it. And it follows a pattern. I grew up and I think you referenced it earlier, believing that science, particularly, you know, in our age, I understood in the past had been corrupted, um, had a self-perfecting system to it. And that good ideas rose to the top and they would overturn old ideas and that that was a regular process and that you could count on that proving well-supported things correct and unsupported theories incorrect. But there are some ideas that overturn so much current thinking that rewriting the textbooks just doesn't quite get to it. You don't just rewrite one textbook. You've got to rewrite the textbook for paleontology. You've got to rewrite the textbook for impacts because this suggests they're much more frequent than is uh, admitted or um, uh, supported by mainstream science today. It rewrites the textbooks for anthropology. It rewrites the textbooks for paleontology. You know, they're about, and I need to go ahead and just sit down. Somebody did it once on the internet and I'll go find it. Every discipline and ology that becomes that, that its understanding of the past is shattered. And that, you know, they say science, as you referenced earlier, you know, it advances one funeral at a time. 
but you've got to have multiple funerals at a time for this one to, to get the traction it needs. But it's happening, Sean. The good news is in the faculty lounges and in the hallways and whatnot, there are elements of the mainstream that while they're not willing to seek a grant and they're not willing to redirect their own time at this point, except very few of them, that they've seen the papers. And if you go to the Cosmic Tusk and click in the upper right little hamburger menu, um, we've collected every single scientific paper on there. And a wonderful fellow, Martin Sweatman um, in Scotland, has even gone and on all the significant papers done a YouTube video that accompanies them and walks you exactly through what happens. And one of the first things you'll notice is the supportive papers, which we do some editorializing and try to break it down into supportive, critical, uh, you know, in between, et cetera, and so forth. And we color code those. If you go read the critical papers, they're threadbare, right? They're more like op-eds. They're opinion-based and they're sneering and they're condescension. And then when they do provide forensic evidence, it's based on very little sampling. And oftentimes that's flawed. When you go look at our papers, they're tour de forces that run into the hundreds of pages with thousands of hours of lab work. But the mainstream will look at those papers that were critical of us and say, well, that was disproven in 2011. I haven't even bothered to look into it since then. Because one archaeologist went out and tried to do some testing on the spherules of a type he had never done before in his life. And he didn't, didn't even use the proper equipment or the proper approach to doing this. First time he'd ever tried in his life, came back, said that there are no spherules. And that becomes their defense in sticking to previous understandings of Earth's history. One paper. Um, there are others out there that are critical. But again, ours are far more definitive and do not get the treatment they deserve because it threatens many, many existing academics um, publishing records. And the, some of them are completely wrong about their central thesis of their career. For instance, the Clovis people killed all the species. You know, you're, you're just not gonna come on board with us and go reverse after 50, 60 years of, of teaching that. And some of them are that old. And they leave the thinking, and that's only going to happen a funeral at a time. And um, but we'll get there, Sean. And uh, but I had an interesting call today with somebody that's interested in providing a lot of uh, more funding in in one fell swoop than we've had in fifteen years. Well, so that, those kinds of things help. So that, uh, yeah, that that well, that's encouraging. And like I said, I the uh, you, you mentioned the uh, uh, a mini series of some sort coming up that would be yeah. uh, very fun for uh, me or people like me. So, um, what do you want to leave everybody with here? So, um, I, I mentioned cosmictust.com. Please, everybody, go check out um, uh, uh, the work being done there. It's yeah. anything else that you want to uh, promote, publish, uh, kind of give people a heads up on. Well, I appreciate that, Sean. And I, I went out and gave a presentation in Sedona, um, Arizona at a conference a couple of weeks ago on this. And afterwards, I swore to myself because I'd forgotten to say it came up in the question and answer period that we had with Graham Hancock and Randall Carlson later about funding for the Comet Research Group. And I'm like, you know what? I'm never going to go on another podcast. And thanks for giving me the opportunity to say that if people are interested in assisting our research, they can go to Comet Research Group dot org um, and go to the donate page and 
for the last 10 years, that's been one of our principal sources of funding, or maybe it's the last six or seven years since we did a fundraising campaign. And it's been really successful. I mean, it brings in enough money to pay. There is probably no small dollar donation that you can make that could have more effect on science than donating to the Comet Research Group because it goes directly into paying for those uh, lab fees for microscopes, for testing the abundance of things like platinum. So uh, a testing platinum in the soil series costs 40 bucks a test. It's actually relatively inexpensive compared to some other stuff that you, like iridium is very expensive to test for. But platinum is 40 bucks. You give 40 bucks, you're paying for a real test that it's going to make a real difference. And there's no overhead in this group. Zero. Nobody's employed by it or whatnot. So if anybody is interested in assisting, you go to cometresearchgroup.org and go to the donate page and toss a few bucks in, either one time or on a recurring basis. That would be tremendously appreciated. And I will be sure to uh, leave that link to uh, uh, the donate page there right in the uh, show description. So, George, I want to thank you for your time. Um, did we did we did we miss anything? Anything that you wanted to make sure that we uh, touched on? Uh, and I'm on Twitter at Cosmic Tusk. Yeah, and I've got my real name up there, unlike a lot of people. But my handle is at Cosmic Tusk, and we're very active on Twitter these days. And if you're interested in this stuff, just searching Younger Dryas in the Twitter search bar. Good thing about the term Younger Dryas is it doesn't appear anywhere else in English language. So if you search that term, you're at the rabbit hole, kind of like Carolina Banks. So yeah, at Cosmic Tusk and uh, love to answer any questions on Twitter. And um, I look forward to staying in touch, Sean. Thank you very much. Yeah, for I appreciate it. Well, it, it, we, I, I have uh, made uh, soft overtures to the uh, Randall Carlson team about trying to do something up here in upstate New York, because I know we have all these geological features that he talks about on a regular Niagara Falls and the Finger Lakes. Oh, the Finger um, Lakes. Yeah, I mean, that's right in our background, our backyard, right? That's we are. There's no question the Finger Lakes perform catastrophically. Yeah. 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 So, so maybe maybe we'll bring you on, and, uh, or uh, uh, in the future we can uh, try to do a uh, New York uh, specific catastrophic. Uh, love to. Uh, well, I'll pass your name on to Randall. Okay. Appreciate it. I yeah. appreciate that. Love for All him right. to join your show too. Thanks That'd a lot. Be awesome. Th thank you very much. Thank you for your time. Okay. Over and out. Yep. All right, folks. <clears throat> I again want to thank George Howard for taking the time out. Uh, very. Uh, lengthy interview, very thorough, and uh, answering all of my questions. So uh, on that note, I will let everybody go until next Monday. I want to thank Ben Husong also for uh, allowing me to dominate the conversation during the interview because he knows that uh, it's kind of like my little, uh, uh, little, little side thing that I like to kind of go down my own little rabbit hole anyway. So uh, I thank him as well. So on that note, we'll see you all, guys, next Monday.